Welcome to Sacred Realms. It's a great day in Hyrule, y'all. Welcome to Sacred Realms, a Zelda retrospective podcast. I'm your host, Lyndon Willoughby. I'm joined on this beautiful early Texas fall evening by my co-host, Matt Willoughby. Um, uh, Pod nights recording outside just truly don't get much better than this, Matt. Yeah, no, this is borderline perfect weather. I think I could go like 10 degrees cooler with a light jacket. Ooh, yeah. Okay. And, and I know, look, we did the fire pit that one time and it was all very crackly. So I don't know that we're going to be able to do that a whole lot more. It but was man, really cozy. It was, it, it was real nice. There was a vibe to that episode. It was worth it, but maybe not every time. Hey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it definitely will be like a very once in a while thing. Yeah, I was going to say, if like every 10th episode or is, is like a Song of Storms episode, then every 10th episode can also be a fire pit episode. You yeah, know, there we go. It's not a big deal. Um, of course, a person who is very shortly going to be experiencing even better fall weather than we currently are. Oh, yes. Um, and, and who is just... Uh, introduced himself uh on the episode uh guys you all know him you love him uh it's max nichols my my colleague notable for being my colleague at bungie (laughs) you're (laughs) literally insufferable matt loves that um who is here with us today and tomorrow will be in gorgeous autumn new england uh max how are you doing tonight i'm doing great uh, i'm really excited to be back in the pod it's been a long time and i'm also really excited to be playing twilight princess um, which is somehow better than I remember, uh, and I haven't played it in years. So, good good vibes all around. So uh, this, I mean, we got a lot of background that we are going to need to catch up on, uh, as we do always with uh, the first appearance of a guest uh, in a new game on the show. And I feel like it's probably best to get into some of that right now because, to be completely honest, uh, episodes of Twilight Princess for us have already not been short. And Max Nichols episodes are notoriously not short on top of that. So uh, I want to I want to leave us room to really spin this thing out. Are are you saying we don't have a lot of extra time to fill outside of what we already have to do? I don't think that I don't think that dead air is going to be an issue on this episode. (laughs) I think uh, I think the odds of us finishing sub two and a half hours are are wildly slim. So, yeah, yeah, that seems likely to me. So, Max, I am just going to ask you, when was the last time you played this game? Uh, When the HD version came out on, like, release week or whatever. 2015. I I think that was 2015. Yeah. So, and that was the second time I played it. This is now the third, and the first time I played it was launch uh, in 2006. And was your launch copy GameCube or Wii? Uh, it was Wii. I went to midnight release of the Wii GameStop in Burlington, Vermont. Shivered in the cold for a while, and they let us into the mall and hurried us to the GameStop. That was the only store that was open in that mall. Um, there was like just this herd of nerds uh, being ushered into the middle of the mall <laughs> at midnight. Were they being uh, but herded I by goats? 
Was kind anyone of. was anyone tackled? Like, did, you, did anyone have to like <laughs> grab you by the horns and throw they you around? Grabbed us and threw them behind them. Yeah, with our momentum. Yep. Okay. Good. Good. We good. had to sumo wrestle for that Wii. <laughs> uh. Anyway, so I brought that home and played Twilight Princess on the Wii that night. Um, so the first time I played it was with the mirrored mirrored world, uh, and then of course since then I've been playing it unmirrored because I don't do. Don't do hero mode. mode. Yeah. In Zelda games. Yeah. Um, Man. Actually, so I should correct myself. The actual first time I played it was at E3 2006, uh, where I stood in line for three hours and then played a demo of it for five minutes. What was um, uh, what chunk of the game was the demo made of? I'm trying to even remember. I think it was mostly like intro stuff. Like, I think they had they had the fishing game. So that's not the intro, but they had like the actual fishing on a boat was part of the demo. Uh, they had some combat thing, um, which I think was from the first dungeon. And uh, I think they had a horse horseback battle. Gotcha. Okay. So, Wait, which, I, you know, it was pretty good cross section, honestly, which makes sense because that horse battle was kind of, we were talking about this last week. The horse battle was one of the big marketing beats uh for the for the entire game i like i remember it was all over the posters and it was in all the trailers and oh yeah they uh so when they reveal it in e3 2004 it famously had a standing ovation and the whole the whole theater stood up and like roared at this realistic the return of realistic zelda that everyone wanted in 2004 um in america at least uh and there's a bunch of quotes from developers where they were like, holy crap, we didn't know people were going to be this excited. And like, I'm more energized than I've ever been in my life as a developer because people are this excited for what we make. And like, it's kind of cool to see those quotes. Yeah, that's, sure. That's they, really fun. They had their like Avengers Endgame moment at that E3. Yeah. <laughs> if anyone's listening and hasn't seen it, just Google like Twilight Princess reveal. And it's the one where Shigeru Miyamoto comes out on stage with a Hylian shield and the Master Sword and... Uh, that might have been the E3 where they revealed Reggie Fizeme. Okay, uh, I say as if he's like some product, yeah. uh, but it, it was a good E3. <laughs> there, there is a debate they to be had like, there. <laughs> they literally pull like a blanket off of Reggie Fizeme on stage. <laughs> we like, made our next uh, CEO of Nintendo America in a lab. Here he is. <laughs> My gosh, we're just kidding. We know Reggie Fizeme is not an AI, nor is he uh, some kind of Blade Runner. Yeah, evil. Yeah, evil replicant. replicant. Yeah, yeah. We, um, we know he's a real person with exactly. real hopes and dreams, yeah. personality, totally organic. We're all on board. He's doing great. Rich. President President Bowser, on the other hand, who's, he had to have come from a vat. Who's to say? Yeah. Well, who's with a say? last name like Bowser, there's no way Nintendo didn't hand grow him somewhere. <laughs> Coincidence? I think not. Um, it's so it's so funny to hear you talking about your experience playing this game for the first time, co- uh, coinciding with the launch of the Wii, which is, I mean, they, they truly just don't do console launches like they used to. I, I, I think that that's, that level of, of hype and that kind of cultural moment may not ever come around in quite that same way again. So it's it's very cool to hear that that was kind of your experience, that it was all rolled up into into one thing. Because um, like Matt and I said a few weeks ago, like we, we lagged significantly behind on this game. Uh, I, I think my first jump into it was six months or more past launch and Matt's was even way like way past that so 
the first time I ever played any Twilight Princess, and I don't know if I mentioned this on our first episode because I actually this was a recent memory that I recovered from my vault of dis discarded memories. Uh, was I played it at my friend Tim Mask's house in high school on his GameCube, but I only got to play like the first I don't know, call it six ish hours. We did like an all night session, and Tim was one of those friends who was great for me because I like to play video games. I hate watching video games, but he got equal amount and this is this is his words not mine he got equal amount of enjoyment from watching video games as like playing them he's he's like the perfect uh target audience for streaming i'm not i I don't like watching (laughs) other people stream god made all types matt yeah so he was like totally chill to like sit there for six hours three up to like three in the morning uh watching me play twilight princess for the first time ever so that's that yeah that was well and we now know exactly how much twilight princess you can get done in six hours (laughs) not up to this point you can't i I think i maybe got through uh the fire temple like maybe yeah 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 (laughs) oh geez uh yeah it was it's funny because the I mean, the GameCube was the last, like the GameCube and what else was that generation? PS2 and Xbox. That was the last generation where there was a substantial improvement in graphical power and like console power. Honestly, like I feel like that was the last major jump. So then the, the when the Wii came out, you know, I think I think it was around the same time that the 360 and the PS3 were coming out. And um so the the Wii, unlike those other two, was more than just a, a small evolution of graphical power. It was also, you know, all the crazy stuff that they're trying with the Wii. Yeah. Um, so but yeah, after that, console launches have been incremental upgrades like people barely cared about the, you know, this latest <laughs> set. Uh, it took like two years for them to be getting exclusives. Well, in fairness, it also took some people two years to get a PS5. So, I mean, yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, no, it's 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 a it's a whole different ball game now. And I guess there is still like a very uh, there is a special moment, I think, whenever a new Nintendo console does come out. So whenever like the Switch successor drops, I I do think like obviously it's going to make a splash. It's going to make waves, but I don't think it's going to be like a, you know, Times Square opening night sort of situation like well the funny thing is and Nintendo is unique in the console industry for this is that they innovate their console not just on a graphical and performance basis but on a gimmick basis much like they do with their games like the Switch was vastly different from the Wii or the Wii U because it was portable like they don't and I think that's why Nintendo consoles are like you, you very rarely see someone who has just a Nintendo console or who has an Xbox or a PlayStation and doesn't also have a Switch. Like it feels like the Switch is almost a sec- like the permanent secondary or Nintendo is the permanent secondary console of a household. And then Xbox or PlayStation would be the primary, like at least in America. And maybe that's just my general my friend group is that way. So maybe there's a lot of bias going on in my own head. But like. Like, I always think about Nintendo not participating in the console war because it's not their their consoles are so different. I think that is definitely a very understandable perspective from somebody who is late 20s, early 30s with lots of friends the same age, most of whom don't have kids. Yeah, I mean, sure. Like, look, I like I said, total possible likely bias on my part. Amongst hobbyist gamers. I think you're pretty much on the money other than the the PC hobbyists that don't touch consoles yeah. with a 10 foot pole. Sure. Uh, 
Yeah, it, it, thinking about like how quickly consoles changed back in the day, like the the amount of time between Zelda One and Ocarina of Time is the same amount of time as between Skyward Sword and Tears of the Kingdom. Yikes! Wow, like isn't that crazy? That's insane. Um, <laughs> uh, so a big difference back then, small difference these days. Yeah. Hey, I want to do a quick digression that you can totally cut from the pod that I really just, it's a question I have for Max. Just no, yeah, go, video go, games. go for it. So like, I, I, I actually never thought about this until you said it, but like the, the big jump in graphical quality from GameCube, Xbox, etc. to, or what did you say? It was from Nintendo 64 to GameCube was the big jump or GameCube to yeah. Wii. Yeah. So like, I never really thought about that, but you're totally right. And I, I also think it's very interesting that, um, Xbox and PlayStation are just like a continual iteration of here's the new console with more power and more graphics, but it's basically the same. And Nintendo's like, here's the same console with basically the same graphics, basically the same power, but it's totally, it like acts totally differently. Like it's just a weird, it's a weird thing. And I, I also find it interesting. And this is something I've always found interesting about you personally, Max is like how, like the, graphics don't like speak to you very much. Whereas to me, like that is the big thing that I look for in a new console is like, I don't really care how many teraflops a console has. I'm like, what is the <laughs> graphical fidelity that it is able to generate? You're over here counting frames. Yeah. I, I, well, not even frames, pixels mostly like, Hey, what is the resolution that it can go up to? Can it do like large scale maps like the Witcher in high definition quality ray tracing preferred not necessary anymore but like especially on console because you don't really get ray tracing outside of like high-end um <laughs> high-end monitors but like that's the stuff that i look for and like I, that's why the xbox one x was so cool to me it was like i can play 4k 22 or 2400 hertz games now and like before that that was impossible unless you had a super high-end gaming pc like that's what i was really excited about for the one x i don't know just yeah interesting no i mean you're 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 pretty much spot on like i do i do appreciate graphical fidelity to an extent but uh probably below average especially for someone that's this plugged in as i am like i can't really tell the difference between 30 fps and 60 fps um a lot of people swear by it like it's very important to them and i can't tell ocarina of time was like 24 fps or something yeah um and uh, like yeah, that that I can feel at least. I can tell Ocarina of Time is choppy, but <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I also I I can never really tell too much either. I was actually shocked the other day to learn that the original Super Smash Brothers on the N sixty four played in sixty FPS. Yeah, that actually, I think a lot of fighting games do the really high frames per second because the rest of it is just a stationary background. So like you're not, they're not having to procedurally generate or keep track of the moving background and foreground. They're really focused on the characters and the moves so they can tune it a lot better that way. So that, I think that makes a lot of sense. I didn't know that, but now that you've said it, it really does make a lot of sense. Yeah. And it it totally depends on how important it is for the game. Like fighting games are they live and die by their responsive controls and like, um, you know, uh, you know, having short latency between you having a thought and your character executing a move. Right. 
Um, so it's super important. People buy controllers that have less input lag, like physically in their cables to try to reduce mm-hmm. it in fighting yeah. games. Yeah. And better uh, HDMI cords. Like, the, yeah. like literally it's all about, it's down to like the microseconds of latency. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. And most games are not that sensitive to those milliseconds. Um, competitive action games are so yeah you counter strike players are the same way that was a fun digression matt i'm gonna leave it in oh thank you yeah, yeah. i enjoyed that it's not going anywhere um so okay so you've played this game twice once on Wii, once on wii u um i know that we i think we've talked generally before about where this game sort of lived in your memory but uh, that was on another season of pod and this is a new season of pod so um Going into your replay of this game, your third play of Twilight Princess, where was it kind of living in? I know you don't keep as firm of a ranking as, say, like a Josh does, but um, <laughs> but like roughly, where would you say that it was hanging out at? Uh, it is my second least favorite 3D Zelda game. OK, um, so I don't know, probably sandwiched between like Skyward Sword and I don't know what would go above it, maybe. I have no idea what would be above it, but, <laughs> uh, Majora's but uh, yeah, it's, it's probably somewhere in the middle of my ranking generally. Okay. The whole series. Okay. Uh, and near the bottom of my ranking of 3d games. Gotcha. Uh, I'm, I'm having some second thoughts about that because I'm, I'm really enjoying it right now. Um, it's kind of fun to go back to an Ocarina of time style game. For the honestly, for the first time in years, I don't think I've played Ocarina of Time, Majora's Mask, or Twilight Princess in in years now. So I do think there really is mm. something to that, just because. I mean, obviously, we've played all those games recently for the pod, Matt, mm-hmm. but also we've been just like I, I've spent the last. Uh, let's see, I've spent the last seven years, basically, of my life just like steeped in the Breath of the Wild convention of Zelda games. Like yeah. between the between the three, three and a half times that I played Breath of the Wild all the way through, and then now all the time that I've spent with Tears of the Kingdom, right? Like just a lot of time spent with that style of Zelda game. And I love it very much. It's really yeah. great. But, you know, Ocarina of Time was my second big Zelda game. It was my first big like 3D adventure game. And uh, I think you're totally right, Max. I think... Uh, I'm coming away from my play sessions feeling pretty warm and fuzzy about it right now. And I think a lot of it is just because it does, it is pulling me back uh, to, to that era of when things were done that way. Yeah. Like the wind waker and skyward sword, both were trying to push the envelope. They were trying new things. They were trying to evolve the design of the Zelda series. Twilight princess, very explicitly their goal was to be Ocarina of time, but better. Like that's what they were trying to do. So they were, it was like a reversion to the mean. Um, so it is, it feels like a dream time. Yeah. To me. I, 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 and I think that that is very apt specifically to this week's episode. Like this yeah. week's episode is, yeah, it is. <laughs> just like, wow. <laughs> could you, could you possibly have just been more blatant about here's Ocarina of time have at it like that's yeah. that's what this section of game felt you're like right. to me you're, yeah yeah you're definitely right matt <laughs> are there any i'm curious max are there any things that you kind of had in your mind in your recollection of twilight princess that you like you went into this playthrough of the game looking to not necessarily disprove but like looking to follow up on your memories of certain specific things 
Yeah, I mean, the, the thing I'm most interested in taking a look with fresh eyes is the world design, the overworld design, because that's an area where I've kind of grown in my skill as a game designer a lot since I last played this. Um, and I, I actually don't want to get into it too much right now, because I think next episode that I'm on will be a better place for me to talk about that. Um, plenty of other stuff to talk about in the meantime, but like that is definitely something that I wanted to reevaluate. Uh I'm not getting surprised too much, though. It's mostly what I expected. Okay. Um, and then the the area that I wasn't like intentionally wanting to reevaluate, but I am reevaluating a lot, is my appreciation of the writing and the character writing in this game. Um, like I have this memory of thinking that the characters in this game are all weird and not very likable, and thinking that like I didn't like a lot of the character designs and thinking that the beginning of the game was really slow and dragged horribly and it still does drag a little bit but this time around I'm like I'm like yeah these are amazing character designs and I am really into this emotionally and like I didn't even mind the beginning too much because I like this the way it infests you into the townsfolk mm-hmm. and so like I, that's the thing that's surprising me Well, and this was a thing that we didn't even talk about. We didn't even touch on this point in our first episode. We did talk about the extent to which the the length of the intro was a historical point against the game. And we talked about our own feelings about like, yeah, it is a little long, Um, but I I don't think it really bothered us too terribly much. And the point that we didn't make that that is now kind of occurring to me is that I think the way that games are designed in the years between Twilight Princess and now has just kind of prepped us a lot more for that intro section specifically. Like, I I mean, gamers have been playing stuff like, you know, like Matt said, like The Witcher 3 and all these like crazy RPGs and stuff that like a lot of them have a pretty big ramp into the actual main body of the game. Um, And I, I think that's something that we're all just a little bit more used to now whereas you know like an ocarina of time yeah you load it up and in 15 minutes you're in the first dungeon or whatever right yeah uh i think i think you're right it's definitely more standard nowadays uh it meets people's expectations more yeah uh, than it did in 2006 for sure Well, I I can't wait to uh, get into some more specific conversation about the stuff that we do in this week's episode, because for several different reasons, I think it's actually very appropriate for you to be on this episode talking about this section of the game, but also just this dungeon specifically. Um, We're kind of bringing things full circle to the original appearance of Max Nichols on Sacred Realms, a Zelda retrospective (laughs) podcast, which I really love. Um, But uh, yeah, let's go ahead and truck through the housekeeping and do all that kind of stuff. Um, Real quick, before we do our scripted housekeeping bits, we've got our weekly recurring bit in which Matt and I catch you up on what beverages we are imbibing this evening the one uh, that we nearly forgot last week yeah we nearly forgot last week and uh, uh i told myself i wasn't gonna actually take the first sip until we did the bit this week so th- call that motivation yeah. yeah um so uh matt you you gave us the rundown last week i'll go on this one um so tonight we are enjoying uh, a pour of old forester kentucky bourbon it is the 1897 bottled in bond which um i'm a big fan of old forester products just in general i don't think i've had too much from them that i don't like um bottled and bond bourbons are are ones that i really enjoy quite a lot uh this is a jackson willoughby tidbit that he imparted to us not long ago but 
if you ever see a bottle of bourbon on the shelf and it says bottled and bond on the label, that means a bottled and bond bourbon will always be 100 proof. Yes. um, Which is good. 100 proof is just a real comfy place to get. Yeah, it's not. It doesn't kick you in the face too hard. It doesn't ride you to the ground. It's uh, but it's also not not weak. It's not soft. It's uh, it's just nice right in the middle. Yeah, absolutely. And I really like the color on this bourbon a lot, too. It's it's. Nice Dark. caramel. Yeah. 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 It's got good coloration. Yep. 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 All right. Well, uh, cheers, Matt. Here's to Kentucky. Cheers. <sighs> Excellent. Delicious. Excellent. Is <laughs> do you the- want to hear what I'm drinking? We do want to hear what you're we drinking. We really, really do. Yes. Uh, I am drinking a can of Jack Daniels Lynchburg lemonade. Uh, it is 4.8 percent alcohol by volume <laughs> so <laughs> almost 10 proof that's and it. it's 24 ounces so it's freaking huge wow that's uh, the big, only thing it's gonna hit one. is my bladder honestly <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's a very summer sounding drink i feel like you're you're kind of moving pretty quickly out of um you know sp- spiked <laughs> lemonade season yeah that's true uh, but it, but it does sound tasty. But hey, we're all keeping it in an, in an American whiskey place right now. Which, there you go. Yeah, there it is. All righty, y'all. Let's get into the housekeeping, then talk about some Zelda. If you didn't know, Sacred Realms is a weekly reexamination of The Legend of Zelda, one little slice at a time. Sacred Realms drops every Wednesday and is available on all major podcast networks. Every week we play a new section of a Zelda game and then we sit down here to talk and drop our hot takes. If that sounds fun to you, please head over to Apple Podcasts, hit that subscribe button and be sure to leave us a review. Five star reviews are greatly appreciated and they have a chance to get a shout out here on the show. If you want more Sacred Realms in your life, you can head over to patreon.com slash sacredrealmspod to get access to our Discord channel, listener mail, vote on what game we play next and much more. Additionally, one of the benefits that Master Sword patrons and above get is that we read their names every week here on the show. Those legendary individuals are Sakura Sky, Art, Jeremy, Derek, Cosmic Link, Dante 2, Tom, Andy, Stephanie, Billy, Connor, Rachel, Shepherd Street, Matthew, Chris, Daniel, Fallout, a 907, Kelso, Chris, Tiffany the Star, Daxel, Patrice, Stephanie, Il Maestro himself, Darknuck, who's been cooking away over on his end of things. Mm. More cool stuff coming from him before too long. Brian, George, Mike, Dylan, Lennon, Melanie, Kolku, Aiden, Rowan, Josh, Nick, Dante One, Gep, Brittany, Davey, Haru the Mighty, Derek, Albert, Mark, Andy, Cameron, Ben, Daniel, Nick D underscore TV, Travis, Hyrule Interviews, aka Max Nichols, Garrett, and Drew. These are the most legendary of individuals, uh, a list of which that has now spread to two pages on Patreon, and I have to click through to read the whole thing. Yeah! So that's great. Um, We would visit a convoluted aquatic dungeon temple with any of you any day of the week. As long as I don't have to dive into the depths with the giant eel that wants to eat me, then yes. It's all part of the experience, Matt. Then I don't know that I would do that. Okay. Additionally, one real quick thing before we get out of the housekeeping. Matt and I received a message from a listener early this week, and uh, it was a very heartfelt message describing this listener um, and their partner's experience with the series of Zelda games, and um, it had some very nice things to say about the role that our show has played uh, 
with uh, with this person in a very tough time of their life. I'm not going to go into too many specifics because it was requested uh, or it was stated that that wasn't really necessary, not what they were looking for. Um, but I do just want to say before we get into the main bulk of the episode that this uh, this episode of the pod is dedicated to Vera and Rob. All right. That's a good dedication. On with the show. Yes, let's do it. Alrighty, y'all. Without further ado, let's talk about what we played. This happens, of course, in the Sacred Realms Rundown, which is a six-part analysis of what we played this week and the feelings that it made us feel. Today, we are covering Twilight Princess Chapter 4. It's a water dungeon. Gonna be fun. Part 1 of the Sacred Realms Rundown is, as always, the plot recap, this week read by Matt. Take it away, Matt. We arrive back in the Kakariko Spiritual Spring with our second fused shadow in hand, and we receive directions for our next step on the journey to restore Hyrule to a land of light. Eldon tells us to go north, across the plain and across the Great Stone Bridge. In the lands guarded by the spirit called Lanayru, we will find one who we seek. While the advice is cryptic, the only person we're currently seeking is Ilya, so we hope that this will lead us to her, as well as to the next fused shadow. Before we turn to leave, we see Colin hobbling out of the structure nearest the spring. He takes a few feeble steps before falling to the ground, but as we rush over to help him, he admonishes us to hurry and save Ilya. He admits that when he felt he couldn't go on after having been captured, he would think of us and Ilya together and hold on a little longer. He stands up and declares very confidently that he'll be fine, and with Renato's promise of watching over the kids, we feel secure about leaving this village behind to continue our journey. Before leaving, Renato offers encouragement by telling us that our deeds so far have reminded him strongly of all the old tales of the ancient hero, and before we leave, he and the children honor us with a respectful bow to speed us on our way. We hop on Epona and head north over Hyrule towards the Lanayru region as fast as we can. As soon as we cross the Great Stone Bridge in the north, a portal appears in the sky and zaps the bridge behind us, teleporting a massive section in the middle into oblivion. In its place, the portal deposits three shadow beasts to guard the area. We decide to take them out before progressing and are gratified to defeat the monsters with our blade instead of our fangs and claws. With no other choice, we head to the Vale of Twilight leading into Lanayru and allow Midna to take us into the shadowy world once more. While Midna's excitement about being back in Twilight isn't exactly the sentiment we share, we head off with vigor to restore this last piece of Hyrule to normal. As soon as we start exploring the region, we find Ilya's satchel on the ground, and like we did with the wooden sword, we use its scent to begin tracking our friend to wherever she may be. The Lanayru region is massive, dwarfing both Ordon and Elden, and we have many miles to cover. And the region is filled with shadowy enemies, and the path we are set to follow seems to contain more than its fair share of monsters. But eventually we come to the gates of Hyrule's castle town, and enter the once bustling center of commerce. Even in twilight, the town is full of people hustling and bustling about, unaware of the fact that they are currently in spirit form. Oddly, these folks seem less perturbed by their circumstances than anyone we've encountered so far, and only seem to be concerned by the lack of fresh water that is normally su supplied by Lake Hylia. The mutterings around us seem to point to an issue at the lake, and maybe even all the way up to Zora's domain, which is the source of the lake's water. 
but for now our focus is on Ilya, and her scent is getting stronger as we explore Castletown. The trail leads to a doctor's office, but thankfully leads out from there and down an alley. We follow it all the way to a seedy little dive bar called Telma's, and luckily the door is cracked enough for us to nose our way in. We immediately see our dearest friend, seated on a box hunched over the prone form of a young boy. A towering woman stands next to Ilya, and they both seemed extremely concerned about the boy on the bed. We're so taken aback by the sight of our friend alive and well that we don't even realize at first that the boy is not human, but a member of the aquatic Zora race. We listen in a bit to what they're talking about and come to understand that the boy is gravely wounded and possibly even near death. The woman, who we assume is the namesake of the bar, mentions that the soldiers in the back room have been discussing some kind of issue, which she believes may be related to the Zora boy's appearance and unexplained injury. Ignoring Midna's jabs about our reunion with Ilya, we head to the back room to eavesdrop on the soldiers and see if we can learn anything useful. It seems this small group of soldiers is being sent, rather unwillingly, to scout out Lake Hylia to try to ascertain the cause of the water shortage. Since they're apparently unwilling to go, we decide to take it upon ourselves and investigate. So we head back out to Castletown and head through the gate back into Hyrule Field to make our way south to the lake. We trek over the large and empty field until we come to the Great Bridge of Hylia and see for ourselves the dire state of the kingdom's water source. The lake is basically dry, and only a small pool of water can be seen from the high ledge overlooking the enormous body of water. We start to cross the bridge, only to be stopped in our tracks by a foul odor that suffuses the air. As we sniff, we identify the smell as oil mixed with the foul stench of nearby bokoblins. As we make this realization, we look up to see a bokoblin step out from behind the portcullis on the far end of the bridge and let loose a flaming arrow. The arrow strikes the ground behind us, and we watch in horror as the entire bridge is engulfed in flame. The bokoblin lights the other side of the bridge in the same way, effectively trapping us between two oncoming walls of flame. With no way forward or backward, we climb onto the rampart of the bridge and leap, aiming for the last pool of water below and hoping that it is deep enough to cushion our fall. The goddesses are indeed smiling down on us as we emerge from the cool, clear water unharmed. We see some Zora warriors in spirit form clustered around the small pool, and they seem to be just as confused as the citizens of Castletown about the state of the lake. More so, they're concerned about the welfare of their brethren in Zora's domain, but have no way of making it up the great riverbed now that it has run dry. We begin exploring the area, trying to find a way to either the spiritual spring or Zora's domain, and we find that the area is rank with Bokoblins, Twilight Kargaroks, and other enemies. As we're exploring the dry lake bed, a Bokoblin gets the bright idea to use some nearby hot grass to summon a huge twilight bird that he rides like some great fell beast. From his perch on high, he rains down arrows in a deadly stream until he's foolish enough to fly too close to the ground, and we use our fangs and claws to knock him back to the ground. Midna has the excellent idea to replace the defeated Bokoblin on the saddle of the great bird, and she uses the beast to carry us where the Zoras could not go, up the dry riverbed to Zora's domain. The river is infested with Bokoblin archers who try to either shoot us down or drop stalactites on top of us as we fly through the great cavern. They're no match for Midna's piloting, and we make it safely to the head of the river, where the entrance to Zora's domain should be running with the pure, clean water. Instead, we find a dried-up patch of dirt, a lonely shopkeeper, and a frigid wind blowing from the north. 
We follow the wind and begin seeing ice and snow covering the hard earth beneath our paws. It's clear that whatever power suffused this land in shadow also froze over the waters of Zora's domain, cutting off the kingdom of Hyrule from its water source and its aquatic allies at the same time. Zora's domain is an impressive spectacle comprised of an immense multi-level aquatic cavern. The vast waterfalls that normally circulate clear water throughout the domain are frozen into sculpturesque pillars, and the immense pool at the bottom of the domain is frozen solid. With Midna's Midna's help, we are able to scale the icy interior of the cavern, jumping from one frozen rock outcropping to the next, all the while dodging massive falling icicles. Once we are finally at the top of the cavern, we come to the throne room of the Zora royalty, which also contains the freshwater spring which feeds the entire domain, as well as Zora's river and Hyrule itself. We peer under the icy sheet and see the frozen forms of the Zora people, encased in ice and powerless to help themselves. Midna muses that all it would take to end this frozen calamity is to heat the icy water, which would in turn thaw the entire water supply of the domain. In the corners of our memory, we we recall dodging out the path of a flaming chunk of rock on the approach to Death Mountain, and we think that we might have a way to help. With the assistance of Midna's twilight teleportation, we arrive back at the upper slopes of Death Mountain Crater and walk over to the immense stone that was hurled out of the volcano during an eruption. The pillar of rock is still red hot, and Midna believes that it might just do the trick to thaw the ice in the Zora throne room. She pulls the massive stone through a twilight portal into the throne room, and it crashes into the ice sheet, creating a cloud of steam and sizzling water. The flaming rock has done the trick, and the cold, clear water of the spring crashes forth throughout the entire domain. The frozen waterfalls give way to torrential flows of water. The rapidity of the ice melt is creating the deluge that Midna believes could carry us all the way back downstream to Lake Hylia. We're still concerned about the Zoras, but a quick look around the chamber shows that they are battered and exhausted by their time beneath the ice, but seem unhurt otherwise. Taking comfort in this, we turn to leap into the swiftly flowing water, but before we can jump, a voice calls to us from somewhere. We turn and see the spectral form of a beautiful Zora woman. She introduces herself as Rutella, former queen of the Zora people. She thanks us for saving Zora's domain and explains that she was recently slain by the creatures of Twilight. She is concerned because her son, the Zora Prince Rallus, was taken from the domain and she doesn't know his whereabouts. Seeing her beloved son return safely home is the last thing that Rutella's spirit needs in order to depart the world, and she begs us to keep an eye out for the young Zora. With this in mind, we take the plunge into the frigid deluge and ride the current all the way down Zora's river. We we splash back into the massive bowl that is Lake Hylia and find that our efforts at Zora's domain have restored the lake to its customary water level. With the entrance to the the Laneru Spiritual Spring now accessible, we doggy paddle to the massive island in the center of the lake and walk forward through the ornately carved stone entryway. The inside of the spring is unlike the resting places of any of the other light spirits in that instead of being exposed to the open air, it takes up the entirety of a large cavern, the ceiling of which is a crisscross of the massive root system of the tree above us. Much like the other spirits, Lanayru speaks to us in a subdued voice and bequests bequeaths us the vessel of light, which we must fill with light essence in order to return the Lanayru region to its proper state. 
The twilight bugs are scattered over a much greater distance this time than in the past parts uh, of Hyrule. And before we are done, we have made journeys to Castletown, Zora's Domain, and the bridges and docks of Lake Hylia. Exhausted, we look at the Vessel of Light and realize that one pod remains unfilled. Midna suggests that we investigate the area of the lake near the spring one last time. And sure enough, when we arrive back at Lake Hylia, in the middle of a raging thunderstorm, our attention is drawn to a massive ball of glowing twilight energy circling some nearby flotsam. Using our wolf senses, we are able to see the true form of the creature, which is a massive queen of the twilight bugs, larger by far than any we have seen yet. It buzzes angrily between the water and the sky, charging at us and attempting to skewer us with its massive stinger. When it gets close, we leap towards its grotesque body and lay into it with our razor-sharp fangs. Eventually, the malevolent insect crashes down into the water, stunned. We see an opportunity to deliver a killing blow by using Midna's twilight lock-on attack and deliver one last chomp. The creature is dead and the final orb of light is returned to the vessel. We're warped back to the spiritual spring and are face-to-face -face with the glowing light spirit, Laneru. Taking the form of a giant water serpent, Laneru congratulates us on our successful attempt to banish Twilight completely from the lands of Hyrule. It tells us that the final piece of fused shadow can be found sealed at the bottom of Lake Hylia in an ancient temple, but it does leave us with a tale of warning. Laneru recounts to us the myth of the creation of Hyrule, when the goddesses Din, Neru, and Feror created the world and all life within it. Leaving the light spirits behind to guard the land, the place where the goddesses departed back to the heavens was called the Sacred Realm, and before long was beset by many looking to enter it and steal the golden Triforce that is held there. Among those attempting to enter the sacred realm by force were a tribe of powerful sorcerers who wielded a dark artifact with which they could cast terrible spells. The artifact was the completed fused shadow, and the goddesses feared that the sorcerers would be able to use its power to infiltrate the sacred realm. They therefore commanded the light spirits to intervene, and so Ordona, Pharon, Eldon, and Laneru came together and used their power combined to banish the tribe of sorcerers forever into a dark dimension. The fused shadow was seized and split into three pieces, hidden away in the depths of Hyrule, never to be used again. Laneru wishes us well on our journey, but warns us finally that the fused shadow is dangerous and cautions us about using it and the corruption of power that it has. We step back out into the daylight, and Midna is anxious to proceed to the hidden temple on the floor of Lake Hylia. There's just one issue. The temple is submerged under fathoms of water, and even though we have a handy set of iron boots, we have no way to breathe under all that water. Midna reminds us that the spirit of Queen Rotella offered to help us in our quest if we could find her son Rallus, and this seems like the only potential way forward. Thinking back to the injured Zora boy that we saw in the tavern at Castletown, it seems likely that this boy and Prince Rallus are one and the same. On top of this, we know that a return trip to Castletown will allow us to reunite once again with Ilya, and so with more than enough motivation to justify the trip, we leave Lake Hylia, with the handy assistance of a nearby massive cannon, and traverse the plains of Hyrule back towards the bustling Castletown. Arriving back in the side street tavern, we walk through the door just in time to almost run face first into a bespectacled old man. 
This fellow is clearly a doctor of some kind, and he is regretfully and harshly explaining to a harried-looking Ilya that his medical knowledge doesn't cover Zora's, and he is of no help to revive the boy. Ilya is incredibly distraught, but even more alarming is the lack of recognition when she looks at us. Confused, we step forward into the tavern to listen in on the conversation, and we hear the barmaid explaining to Ilya that she has heard of a shaman in Kakarigo village who's supposed to have all sorts of healing knowledge that a regular doctor wouldn't. The nearby troop of soldiers at first seem very willing to escort the beautiful young Ilya to Kakariko village, until a reminder from the barmaid that Hyrule Field is swarming with monsters sends them running from the bar in terror. The furious barmaid warns the cowardly soldiers against ever coming to her establishment again, and it's then that she notices us lurking in the corner. One look at our face tells us all she needs to know, and it's clear that we are resolved to help escort the sick Zora prince and Ilya to see Renato. The barmaid introduces herself as Telma, and seems to have an inkling that Ilya is someone that we know. She explains that Ilya has completely lost her memory, and has been beset with worry for the young Zora. She recounts that even though Ilya didn't even know her own name, she risked her life to help the Zora boy into town, and has watched out for him ever since. The best option at this point is to get Ilya and Rallis to the safety of Kakariko Village on Telma's cart, so we head out to Hyrule Field to, es- to escort them across the monster-infested plains. Sure enough, the fields are swarming with monsters, and early on our journey, we fight another boss Bokoblin riding a tusked boar. This big guy is smarter than his previous compatriot and uses two large shields to protect himself from our sword. But he isn't smart enough to avoid the sting of our new bow, and he quickly falls to our arrows. The rest of the journey is filled with ambush after ambush, sometimes Bokoblin archers posted on hills or riding boars, other times flying Kargaroks carrying bombs. But at the end of the day, even the combined might of these monsters is not enough to overcome us, and we see to it that Telma's cart pulls safely into the gates of Kakariko village. Sure enough, Renato is able to help Rallis, and confirms that we got the boy there in time to ensure his eventual recovery. The news about Ilya is less positive, and while she is physically healthy, there is nothing anyone can do to help her regain her memories. We will simply have to wait and see if they come back. Ilya is determined to stay with Rallis, and Colin is eager to watch over Ilya and help her in any way he can. All in all, the situation seems as safe and stable as it can be. Even Telma decides to hang around Kakariko as she casts a rather interested eye over Renato. With the group safe and all of our friends reunited in one place, we make to head back to Lake Hylia to see if the late Queen of the Zoras will be able to help us. But our question is answered before we take a single step out of the village, as the Queen's spirit appears before us and begins to guide us towards the town graveyard. There we find a stone at the very back of the area that has the symbol of the Zora people on it, and the queen disappears through the wall, causing the stone to shine brightly and vanish. We follow her through the crawl space and come to a beautiful oasis that looks completely out of place in this desert town. The queen thanks us for keeping our promise to safeguard her son, and tells us that Kakariko is a sacred place for the Zora people, as this spring is where they come to find their final rest. Her late husband, King Zora, is buried here, and with him is a treasure that he crafted to help the hero of Hyrule in their journey. With one final thanks and a petition to tell her son that she loves him and is proud of him, the queen's spirit fades away to join her husband in the beyond. 
The king's tomb contains a unique set of scaled armor that we learn is called the Zora armor. This magical garment will allow us to breathe underwater like the aquatic folk, but also makes us more vulnerable to ice and fire attacks. We now have everything we need to explore the temple in the lake, so we leave the sacred resting place to head there. Before we leave town, we stop by Barnes's bomb shop to follow up on a letter that he sent us earlier regarding some waterproof bombs that he has invented. Feeling that these might be useful in an underwater temple, we fill up our newly purchased bomb bag and head across Hyrule to the lake. We waste no time dilly-dallying about and dive straight into the water to locate the underwater temple. The deepest part of the lake houses the entrance, but the Zora people have blocked it off to prevent the hordes of monsters that infest it from spilling out into Lake Hylia. With one of Barnes's bombs, we blast open the entrance and finally make our way inside the lake bed temple. True to our expectations, the temple is an aquatic haven for dangerous creatures. Electrified jellyfish, man-eating clams, chews of all colors, and fish that explode on contact litter the area and make exploration treacherous. The entrance to the temple is dark and damp and smells of drying seaweed and pond scum, but once we enter the temple itself, we find a wholly different place before us. The Zora people have obviously taken great care to create this place as a sacred site of some kind, and have ornamented it with azure and teal mosaics, grand sculpted arches, and an enormous central pillar topped with a crystal chandelier. The design and architecture of the water wheels and other inner workings of the temple tell the tale of a people clever with their hands and with a keen understanding of technology. We begin to make our way around the central chamber, trying to find our way to the second level. The center of this room contains a rotating staircase that leads from the ground floor to the second level, so we begin to experiment with different rotation settings of the staircase to try to find a way deeper into the temple. Many of the doors open up to causeways that are blocked by unmoving water wheels or locked doors, but eventually we find our way to one that allows further access. We start diving into the temple with Ernest, and through a long series of doors, we come to the first water gate that is holding back the tide needed to make the water wheels turn. We open up the gate and allow the water to flow freely, which serves to partially raise the lower water level in the central chamber, as well as a few other areas in the temple. Importantly, the water flows down the staircase and onto the ground floor, causing the previously immobile water wheel to turn and allowing us to access that part of the temple. With the trick of the temple in mind, we explore this new section, looking for the second water gate that we can open. In the course of our explorations, both on the dry land and in the waterways that run throughout the temple, we find our way into a dank and swampy room that reeks of toadstools and rotting vegetation. As we enter the area, a strange blob falls from the ceiling and bursts open, revealing a monstrously large and aggressive tadpole that we have to strike down with our sword. Following the trail of the dropped egg, we look up to see an enormous toad clinging to the ceiling. When this creature sees us, it drops down and roars its intent to attack. Oddly, it doesn't attack straight away, instead choosing to shed its clutch of eggs that all burst into a swarm of the tadpole creatures who charge us. Using some well-timed charge attacks, we clear the oncoming horde, only to have the toad leap high into the air and attempt to land on top of us to crush us to death. We easily avoid this clumsy attack and take the opportunity to slice away at the toad's exposed tongue. The creature recovers and somehow sheds another clutch of eggs to attack us, thus repeating the pattern and revealing the cadence of the fight. 
after a few more rounds of killed the tadpoles and dodged the belly flop, we destroyed the disgusting creature and claimed the treasure that it was guarding. The chest contains a hookshot that will allow us to latch onto distant targets and cross great chasms with ease. With our handy new tool, we continue our exploration of the temple, eventually finding the second water gate. Once we open it, we head back to the central chamber to see that the water level has risen to allow us access to the locked door below, but we still have to find the large key that opens the chains keeping the door sealed. We explore the underwater passageways in the temple and eventually locate the big key, as well as some useful pieces of heart along the way. We use the big key to open the door to the boss chamber, and look down the small hole into the black abyss beneath, apprehensive about the unknown monster that waits below in the dark. There's nothing for it but to leap into the darkness and tackle what waits below. As we land in the cold water, there is no light in this deep place for us to rely on. Eventually, we acclimate enough to see by, and start the descent into the deep waters with our iron boots. We see the remains of some pillars that speak to a grandeur long past, and on the bottom of this deep watery pit, we see the sands of the lake bed and a lone, slimy, worm-like appendage protruding from the sands. When we land on the bottom, a giant eye oozes its way into the tentacle to spy on us, and when it retreats back underground, a gaping maw as wide across as our entire outstretched body emerges from the soft sand, with a dozen grasping tentacles surrounding it. The twilight aquatic monster Morpheel, the scourge of the sacred temple of the Zora people, has joined battle in its watery lair. The deep water of this place has us very out of our element, and we are limited in mobility as well as available equipment for this fight. We have to rely on our new hookshot to try and snag the eye out of the tentacles whenever it emerges, but we have to keep a wary watch on our surroundings while we do so. Morpheel continually tries to snag us like a shrimp in its tentacles, meaning to munch us to death. We get the first blow on the eye, unable to do more than a hit or two in this weighty water. Once the eye rejoins the tentacles, Morpheel spits forth a swarm of bomb fish to block our hookshot and attack us. So we take to the water and swim around to avoid the swarm of fish, hooking them when we can to thin the horde. Eventually we snag the eye again and utilize the bomb fish to do some damage to our foe. After a couple more scraps, Morpheel briefly retreats beneath the sand before coming fully out of the lake bed to track us down and devour us. The monster is absolutely massive, easily longer than the stream that ran through Ordon Village. We swim alongside the monster and eventually get a lock with the hookshot on its eye, which has taken up residence in the base of its skull. When we reach the monster, we latch on with all our strength and stab away at the weak spot. Morpheus shakes us off, but we quickly latch back on and finish the beast off with a final stab of our Ordon blade into its eye. The eel flails around wildly and blindly until it finally runs headlong into the wall, shattering the rock enough to drain the water from this monster's lair. We walk on the sodden sand up to the body of the slain beast, and it bursts into the familiar shapes of twilight before coalescing into the third and final fused shadow. Midna takes this treasure and has an uncharacteristic moment of sincere gratitude towards us, and even apologizes for dragging us all over the kingdom in search of these relics. She is confident, maybe more hopeful than confident, that she can finally challenge Zant and overthrow the self-proclaimed King of Twilight. After dealing with the beasts that these relics have created when separated, and remembering the warning that Laneru imparted to us, we have more hope than ever before that these relics will hold enough power to truly challenge the King of Shadow.
We grab the piece of heart from the beast's corpse and hop into the portal that Midna so helpfully created. And as we dissolve into the now familiar feeling of teleportation, we have more confidence and hope to restore the kingdom of Hyrule than we have since we set out on this journey so long ago. Well done, as always, Matt. Oh my gosh. Uh, I should have I should have checked what our timestamp was when you started that. Um, and, and I'm, I'm not actually sure how long that went on for. Um uh, I mean, just by pages, that was not as long as... No, that's a full page shorter than our Elden region, and that was a full page shorter than the Faron region. So, you know, by, I think by the time we're done with this game, maybe we'll be back to a decent length, but I, I don't have hope <laughs> I, for that. <laughs> I don't know. We'll see. Um, Max, you got a front row to that whole thing. How do you do? Oh, it was great. <laughs> Um, I may not have paid 100% attention the whole time, but I will listen to this episode later. (laughs) You can be forgiven. It's okay. I barely paid attention the whole time and I read it. So yeah, I get you. (laughs) Yikes. Yeah. I mean, seriously though, I, I, you're a trooper, Matt, like this season is, is truly putting you to the test. I, I actually can't think of a game that's going to give you more trouble than this for the entire rest of the pod. Maybe, maybe tears of the kingdom. Maybe, but I, I, really I doubt it. So. Breath of the Wild wasn't this difficult. <laughs> yeah. Dang. Okay. Impressive regardless. All right, let's move on to part two, which is our takes where we talk about this section of the game and how it made us feel. So, look, it's so funny because listening to your plot recap, Matt, there were some things that I forgot happened, and I played this like two days ago. So it just it, it speaks a lot to how densely packed um, – this game has been so far max how is this just generally speaking like the structure of the game and how many things they're fitting into each section as we've organized it for the podcast i mean how is that feeling to you is it feeling like a lot too much just right uh i think they're front loading it too much but i mostly say that not because i think it's too much right now but because i know it becomes too little in contrast later. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, I remember thinking the last half of this game is really sparse compared to the first half. Yeah. Um, it, it really does feel like each section that we played so far goes out of its way to have four or five big set pieces, um, between finishing the previous dungeon and getting to the next one. And there's a lot of stuff that is just like, I mean, like I said, I, it's not that I necessarily forgot about, for instance, the fight with the Bokoblin who ends up on the fell beast, as you put it, you know? Um, but, uh, it's like, like that, that was a cool enough interaction and it would normally be the kind of thing that would stick with me a little bit more because it's an enemy that you fight a lot of in this game behaving in a different way and it being, it being coming kind of a spectacle. Right. But just because it was less impactful than, the queen twilight bug fight and everything that happened in the dungeon and the cart ride to Kakariko village and thawing out Zora's domain and like all these other things, you know, it just kind of went (laughs) kind of slipped, slipped between the cracks in my memory. Um, so it is interesting. Like, I think all of these things are fun enough in and of the, uh, of themselves, but I'm wondering if they have the room that they need to, to breathe. Um, I don't think they do. I, I, I'm kind of landing on the side of no a little bit. I I don't have room to breathe. 
just reading through <laughs> a like look i not not to like have have a self-pity party or anything because i really don't self-pity for the length of these plot recaps yes it's a lot of work and yes it's hard but like i think when the most story driven narrative heavy 3d game that i think has ever been made in the zelda series aka skyward sword has plot recaps that are averaging five full minutes less than this and those have long cinematic sections of story building and like like that's just this very telling and most of this is summarization of like you said Lyndon, those big set pieces and like we're just going one to the next 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 and it's it's a breathless pace that is just brutal and like you and i talked a lot about can we split these episodes up? Like we would like to, for our sake, like this was, I think this took me four and a half hours this week to play the game, not including the four plus hours that you and I collectively spent on the plot recap. Like it would be very nice to split those up a little bit, but if we split them up, then neither section would have enough meat to really have a whole episode. But together it's so much that you're just like, it's, it's hard. (laughs) It's hard to escape the convenience of having dungeons be like the, the end point of an episode. Right. Yeah. Like that just like the structure kind of falls apart a little bit if we're not doing that. Um, like once or twice we are going to have to do that. Like next week's episode, which I still haven't posted the revised schedule for. I'm going to do that. I promise. Um, <laughs> like next week's section is not going to have a dungeon for this exact reason. But like for the most part, it's a, it's a format that's really tough to get away from. Like I, I don't know. What do you think, Max? Do, I mean, do you do you see yeah. a way for us to do this that's a little easier than how we're making it sound? I mean. I guess I guess it would basically look like just committing to shorter episodes that don't have as much in them but you know half of the episode the episodes are all like two two and a half hours then you're ending up with an hour hour and 15 minute episodes and maybe a few of those scattered in the season wouldn't be too bad um yeah i mean like podcast format aside are are you too is your temperature overall that it is like an it is a negative thing that there is this much plot happening um not really no no no, not really no no podcast format aside no and and i did actually my i did split my own personal playtime up this week i played through um i think i played through getting all the twilight bugs and then stopped and then i had a short like 30 minutes 30 45 minutes with which i had time to play so i did through Telma's cart. And then I did a little bit of side stuff. I went and got some pieces of heart, blah, blah, blah. We'll talk about that at Bluebee trails. But like I, so I, I split it into three playing chunks myself this week. Yeah. With the third one being the whole dungeon experience. As did I, it was, it was three chunks for me as well. And I, I didn't feel like I was killing myself to get that done. Uh, and and like each, each chunk was a lot of fun. Like I I am really, I'm still really enjoying this game. And I think that this section, particularly if we're talking about it just from the perspective of like what happened in the game, Mm -hmm. I think most of it was, was really fun. Um, like I enjoyed this time a lot. It is just 
purely from the perspective of like breaking it down for our podcast format, right? It's, it's like yeah. at, at what point does it just become too much? I I don't think we're quite there yet, but it is it is a question that's kind of like lingering in the in the backs of our minds. But to well, your point, Max, maybe it's not something we I have mean, to worry about too much. Yeah, longer. I think you're past the, the all the the biggest episodes now. Yeah, Sweet. and okay, and that's cool. that's part because of because you're thing. splitting up the next one. If you weren't, then that would be the biggest. Yeah, but. yeah. <laughs> and I think like to me, that's kind of the the frustration point more than the format of the podcast itself is like we are just absolutely getting force fed so much at the beginning of this game and it's like we're basically almost halfway done with the game and there's still five more dungeons to go and the finale like and that's just because so much of this front three dungeons was just loaded up with these set pieces in the middle that I feel like really could have been like you push this, this Telma cart stuff into, you know, two episodes from now in, in our podcast format, or, you know, you push it down the road a little bit and you, you have a more, a more balanced experience that I think would flow better. Hmm. So uh, that's just kind of where I'm at is like, I wish that they had, they had load balanced a little bit yeah. better. It's interesting. Yeah, it, Twilight Princess does this thing where the first half of the game, it's very dense plot and very little in the way of like agency exploring the world. You are very railroaded through most of this first half of the game. Um, and then the latter half is very little plot, if my memory serves. It's been a few years. And all the agency to explore the world. Um, and personally, I, I would have preferred that they spread both of those out a little bit. But there are reasons why that might be hard. Um, it's it's the same as the Wind Waker. Remember, the Wind Waker was very railroaded for the first three dungeons. Yeah, yeah. And then they let you explore the world. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, it's an apt comparison. I think a, a lot of this, too, is just there's so much time and energy going into continually fleshing out the cast of characters, which we've already talked about as being a real high point so far. And it's tough to knock it too much because I do think that that investment pays off both now and later, if memory serves. So like, I, I kind of understand what they're doing and I don't, I don't begrudge it. You know, I do think in a perfect world, yes, I, I think we can pick apart some ways in which maybe things could have been distributed just a little bit better. But um, I, I think overall what's happening here is that we are just we're spending the first three dungeon areas just getting a crash course into what's happening, who are the people involved, get emotionally invested in all of it, and then kind of go into the back half of the game. So I think that that's totally fine. Speaking more generally, Max, how did you enjoy your section of game this week? Um, uh, it has ups and, ups and downs. I think this of the three major, like three or four major sections so far, this is probably my least favorite um, as far as the interstitial stuff goes. Uh, you know, you spend way too long in wolf form in this section. Um, I was very wolf fatigued by the end of it. Uh, and I care less about the Zora than I do about the Gorons or Ordon, of course. Um, the dungeon's awesome, though, which we'll talk about more later, I guess. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, it kind of evens out. And there is some really cool stuff in here. Like, you get your 
for you. Know, I mean, you meet Telma, you meet Hyrule Castletown. Uh, you, there's a whole bunch of places you see for the first time in this section, like Zora's Domain, like Hylia, Castletown, Western Hyrule. Um, the fantastic raft riverboat upstream evil bird ride uh <laughs> twice right yeah yep you got to do everything uh, twice in this game you can do nothing once in twilight princess you really can't like i didn't need another boss bokoblin fight like it was fine i didn't need two bird rides they were fine like I why 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 are we doing things twice yeah i don't get it <laughs> um it's yeah it's it's really interesting your point about zora's domain specifically so that we're going in no in no real chronological order here but i do think that um so in ocarina of time obviously we had a little bit of emotional investment in the freezing of zora's domain right because we had been there when it was unfrozen and we knew ruto and we knew king zora like we had some we had some reason to feel like zora's domain being frozen was a like a shocking event um yeah and i think this game tries to do a similar thing Maybe just for the sake of like, hey, we should freeze Zora's domain again, right? It, like it's, it, it's Why not? It worked right, once. So. Let's do it twice. Yeah. <laughs> again. Ocarina of Time again, but better. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> goal. Exactly. Except I don't think it's actually better here. It's I, not. Nope. No, it, it's, so, it's so perfunctory. Like maybe, maybe it's something about only seeing frozen Zora's domain while you're in the twilight. That yeah. makes it feel. Hey, I'm going to pull the pod cart over here because we're yeah. we're like out of order, and I and I want to go back and talk about. Um, I want to talk about Hyrule Field in general as Wolf Link, um, and this is something you and I talked about, Lyndon. So to Max's point, like he just said, very fatigued out on Wolf Link by the end of this section of game. I think that is 100 accurate, and I think a lot of that is due to the fact that you spend a solid like. I would say 20 to 25% of your time in Wolfling form is literally just getting from point A to point B to point C because it is a massive open space and it is empty. Yeah. It is it is just like how fast can I get across this field while smashing A to keep in my sprint doing, uh, doing your bark sprint. Yes. Yeah. Like, yeah. and it is pointless. Like every single time Midna makes her little yeah. noise. Yeah. yeah. The sounds <laughs> that, that, that noise, uh, yeah. my, my fiance looked at me and she goes, why does that sound so sexual? And I was like, I don't know. I didn't make the noise. I'm sorry. <laughs> so yeah, we ended up muting that for a while. Um, like, well, between that and the clunk of the iron boots, right? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah no, there was there, there was a lot of this game that was played on, on mute while my fiance was kind of looking at me side eye a little bit. So, um. oh. <laughs> OK, so cool. Very quick tangent. Uh, do you know why Midna is in this game? No, I'm going. I'm, I'm probably. I really want to know. Yeah, yeah, I want to know. OK, lay it, on, <laughs> lay it on us. It's because it's because when you're in a four legged form. And you're looking behind your character with a third person camera. All you see is the wolf's butt. So they gave a rider <laughs> to Wolfling. That's why Midna exists. That's actually kind of hilarious. So you have something to look at besides a wolf's ass. It's said his, you get an imp's ass and a wolf's ass together. It's hysterical to me that that's, that wasn't even just like the basis of the conversation was, hey, should we have a companion character in this game? <laughs> That's a thing we do a lot of. Maybe we should talk about that, you know? Like, okay. 
Miyamoto famously has a a thing like a philosophy where like a good design choice is a choice that solves multiple problems. So I'm sure there were other reasons as well that they have Midna, but that was one of them. (laughs) Uh, Freaking hilarious. I mean, look, last week we talked a lot, Max, about Wolf Link sections and why we felt that they were kind of coming up short. And I think like we, we had one or two things that we were able to clearly articulate like, yes, Wolf Link combat's not great. There's not much to it. Um, it's not even necessarily the movement. I think we've figured out like Wolf Link moves fine. There's nothing really wrong with it. There's just something ab- about it that keeps the whole thing feeling pretty mid while you're Wolf Link. And I'm, I'm wondering if your professional game design, <laughs> uh, you know, expertise can kind of help us give a, a firmer voice to why that is. Um, I, so I don't have a firm diagnosis here, but, uh, I think, I think the, the real meat of the problem here is just that the things you do when you're wolf link are not generally exciting. It's chasing bugs. It's sneaking. It's, um, not being able to interact with anyone. It's, uh, you know, you're looking at the world through a sepia filter. Like it's kind of, you're not doing things that are very exciting. You're not, you're not doing things that fulfill the fantasy of a wolf, right? If you, th- if you were to ask yourself, like what would be cool about playing as a wolf? It isn't pouncing on bugs, right? And it's not pressing a, to grab on to a twilight beast twice to kill it. Um, while nothing else happens in combat. Like you want to feel like you're fast. You want to feel like you're in control of yourself in combat. Like you want to feel ferocious. Um, and like the game doesn't really give you any of those things um, when you're in wolf form. I don't, I don't think. Uh, I also actually do think that controlling as wolf link feels pretty bad. Really? Okay. I, I totally agree with that. Yeah, like it, the same year that this game came out, there was another game, Okami. Okami. Yeah, that it it was you played as a wolf. It was a Zelda game essentially in terms of structure. It was released in two thousand six. It was a better Zelda game with a wolf in two thousand six than Twilight Princess was, I think. Uh, but um, in that game, when you play as a wolf, like you're fast, you're powerful, like it feels amazing to run around. Uh, hypothetical question for you two. Imagine if you played as a wolf in The Wind Waker. Do you think that would feel better? I mean, I want to say yes, and that that is simply um, that that is simply because I still stand by my like the the observation that I had about Wind Waker versus Twilight Princess controls for this entire mm-hmm. podcast. Like I, I talked about this so many times. Um, and especially while we were playing wind waker, uh, I still feel like wind waker is just a better feeling game than twilight princess. Like the way that link moves and controls and like the fluidity of things and the precision of things, um, feels way more dialed in, in wind waker. And, I'm just assuming that that would also carry into a wolf link situation if, if it had happened in that game. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I yeah, mean, that's kind of where I land too. 
Oh, go for it, Matt. Yeah, I was going to say, I, I agree. I think so far my biggest consistent complaint about Twilight Princess is I think the controls kind of across the board feel stiff and clunky and, and not great. It's got a clunk to it. Yeah, like, it, it really it, does. It really yep. does not feel polished. And I don't know why. Like every Zelda game I've ever played, even Ocarina of Time, felt smoother than this game as far as controlling your character, controlling your horse, controlling your items. Like aiming was smoother like all of it was just smoother in every other zelda game i've ever played except just in twilight princess it's very jittery clunky like non not precise rolling in phantom hourglass smoother than this no i I don't Uh, no absolutely not i don't mean that i take it back (laughs) Uh, i mean i can tell i can explain some of that um so the thing that twilight princess that is intention in Twilight Princess is their desire to be realistic. Uh, like Ocarina of Time wasn't realistic. It was just like it was it was in 64 graphics, right? Like nobody thought of it really as realistic because nothing was realistic in 1998. Um, but once you get more realistic proportions and movement, you start running into problems like uh well, I mean, you run into uncanny, uncanny valley stuff, first of all, right? Like the more the more realistic it the characters look, the more wooden their their lack of expression looks. Like this, the characters in this game's facial expressions um, most of the time generally feel more clunky to me than like Ocarina of Times did. Even though Ocarina of Times are way lower fidelity, um, and that's because of the uncanny valley thing. But that extends to, to animation and movement as well. Uh, where like they they were valuing an illusion of realistic momentum and um, like stride and like skeletal movement and stuff to a greater degree than they did in any Zelda game before or after, I would argue. Um, and that kind of just p- puts a bunch of constraints on them where they, they kind of like make small uh, c- compromises um, to stuff like responsiveness and like how quickly can your character turn around and how quickly can you go from a stop to a full sprint? Like they make those things just a little slower because they don't want it to look too weird in a realistic art style. Um, I think proportionally link is taller in this, like in terms of the size of the space he takes up uh, and the size of his model. um, I think he's taller than he is in like Ocarina of Time. Uh, which means that like it's slightly harder to judge like where you're standing in relation to enemies around you. Because um, like it's easiest to judge if it's like top down and like you're you're a square, right? Like that's when it's easiest to judge spatial relationships. And the further you get away from being like a perfect sphere and top down, the harder it becomes. Um, so very tall characters in third person are really hard to e- evaluate like visually in space. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And the funny thing about all this is in the pursuit of quote unquote realism, you know, at the time, Twilight Princess may have been hailed as realistic Zelda. Right. But as time has kind of moved on, I think we can look at it and say, like, I mean, this 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 isn't realism. Right. This is still like there's still an art style at work here. This is still like heightened animation. Uh, and, and, it, and we're at the point now where I think I, I, I doubt anybody would really say that 
realism is anything that they're even looking for in no, Zelda. At th- this this point. is this honestly when you were talking about, especially in third person, how tall characters are kind of hard to, to mess with. That's a very Skyrim problem. It's a very it's a very Bethesda game problem where controlling characters in Bethesda games in third person, especially in combat, feels horrible. That's why nobody does combat in Bethesda games in third person. Anytime you enter a combat sequence in Oblivion, Skyrim, uh, Starfield, anything, you almost always switch to first person because you can't really control your character gracefully with that. That point of view so uh, i think that that's a really good point that i hadn't really thought about max so yeah, I, I really agree with that and um yeah i mean that that's a that's a great observation comparing it to bethesda games i mean bethesda is very different priorities in their their game design than zelda does um you know for better or for worse they just make very different kinds of games yeah uh so it generally doesn't feel as weird when you're it's clunky and oblivion or whatever uh <laughs> But it does stand out in Zelda. Yeah. The Wolf Link problem is kind of similar, like a genre of problem, where like by default, um, well, backing up, perception of speed in games is a very weird thing because uh, character speed and environment size are like very tightly linked to how fast players feel like they're going. Um, and generally what the way games work is they, you know, they figure out, okay, this is how fast the avatar goes. We're going to design our environments around this avatar. We're going to make the size of the door a size that feels good to try to run through at the speed you run at. And like, if, if you get like a double speed buff in games, like, oh, it's harder to go through doors now because the doors were designed with assuming a certain degree of, uh, you know, control relative to your speed. Um, and like you can have a character's speed to make an environment feel twice as big. Uh, I mean, I don't necessarily think that's a good strategy a lot of times because it doesn't. It's not fun to go slow, but <laughs> uh, you know that's the sort of stuff that happens is people mess with like camera angles and character speed to change perception of space. Um, you are correct, Max. Well, it is not fun to go slow. We'll come back to that later. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so what happens with the Wolf Link is. They make you go through environments that are not designed for Wolf Link, basically, is the core problem. Wolf Link moves fast. Wolf Link is weird to control on narrow platforms or on small spaces because he moves too fast for them. Um, and that's why, like, when I play Wolf Link, I'm constantly falling off of stuff. I, I feel like it's hard to line myself up with the things I want to line up with. Um, like, the only thing that makes traversing vertical spaces like acceptable at all with wolf link is the whole thing where you teleport you like jump to midna teleporting around right which was just like a it was a shortcut they took like instead of making spaces that are good for wolf link we're just gonna let you arbitrarily jump up ledges um which was like a concession they made to the fact that they couldn't design the same space properly around both wolf link and link link Gotcha. Yeah, that that makes sense. Yeah, it's interesting. I I think it really is just exacerbated this week by the fact that they chose to, for whatever reason, double the length of the Wolf Link section here. Um, Like, I know that later in the game, we are actually presented with a situation where you can freely transform between Wolf and Human Link, and I'm curious to see how I feel about that once, Mm -hmm. like... Once we get to a point where 
that's actually being used as a puzzle solving mechanic because you can just like freely switch back and forth between them. I think I'll maybe my opinions will change just a little bit, but yeah, I don't know. I, I think this section of twilight bug hunting was just, it was just too much. Um, and there's something about being introduced to these areas. Like we, we get introduced to four or five pivotal game areas mm-hmm. as wolf link in the twilight in in this section of game and i really do think that that sort of there's there's a weird blunting of of the grandeur that those moments should have right um by virtue of them being done that way because there's something that is i think intentionally claustrophobic feeling about you when you're in the twilight right yeah and there's the sepia filter over everything like max just mentioned um corners are kind of dark everything feels more closed in yeah even even when you're in hyrule field like the edges of your maximum vision are more blurred by you know by darkness so Mm -hmm. while you're traversing this massive open empty soulless featureless space it feels like you're just going a mile at a time and you're just like it's just another mile it's yeah. just another mile and, just- and i'm not sure what the solution is here because the entire narrative hinges on like oh hyrule has been subsumed in twilight and you have to fix it you know uh i can't think of a way that it would have worked for us to visit these places prior to them being bathed in twilight but but i do think what we're missing here is the big like the sweeping intro moments of like ocarina of time yeah. or majora's mask or whatever I it's am, like bum, 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 right bum, yeah bum. exactly it's like hey lake yeah. lake hylia here it is it's huge it looks awesome yeah you know? and yeah like I I'm I keep kind of hitting this point. And I'm just going to state it bluntly. I hate what they've done to Hyrule Field. I hate how big it is. I hate how empty it is. I hate how uh, how pointless it is. And th- at least in this section of game, tra- the traversal of Hyrule Field is completely meaningless. Like it's just a time waste. So and- really, it seems to me like all that it is is it is at it's as large as it. It, it is as large as it is and as segmented as it is because for the the flow of the game to be what they want it to be, you cannot be allowed to go backwards to a place that you've already been until you're done with the twilight section. Yeah. Like you've got lots of crevices, lots of ravines. You have sections of bridge disappearing, right? Um Like they have it segmented off basically by the chunk of the early game that you're playing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're doing a lot with this. Like there's a lot of things they're trying to accomplish with the way this design works. Um, like each chunk is a loading is a different loaded set of stuff. Uh, you know how all the chunks are, are connected by these like S shaped passages. Yes. Like you, from the beginning of one passage, you can't see into the beginning of the, the other end. You have to like go around a corner in the middle. And that's because there's a loading pop, probably. Um, like we do the same thing in Destiny. Uh, but so it's segmented up, and like some of the stuff that that allows them to do is segment your gameplay as well. Like it's easy for them to put like a bottleneck, like a locked gate or something. Um, I half suspect that that's also why they have these big Twilight Zone. Like I think it's it's an easy way for them to wall off parts of the map. Um, so that's part of why they did that probably. Uh, but yeah, like if you think about Ocarina of Time's Hyrule Field 
And compared to this, Ocarina of Time's Hyrule Field is way smaller. Like each of these cardinal direction segments are as big as Hyrule Field was in Ocarina of Time. But altogether, it still feels smaller in Ocarina of Time's Hyrule Field did to me as a kid. Part of that is nostalgia glasses. But I do think there is something about the the segmentation of it. Like it, it does feel closer and it feels it feels like the walls and the cliffs are closer to you in this Hyrule field than they are in Ocarina of Time. Like in Ocarina of Time's Hyrule field, you can you can see all the way from one area. Like you can walk out of Kokiri Forest and look all the way over to Hyrule Castle or to Death Mountain or to, you know, the Gerudo desert end of things. Like it, it just feels vast in a certain way. And I don't think that this incarnation of Hyrule field feels vast at all. Yeah. Perception of speed is another part of it. Density is part of it because that changes your perception of how big a space is, is how densely populated with things that matter it is. I think a big part of it is that there's not, there aren't moments that are memorable and feel grand, like you were mentioning, in the field. Like at no point so far in this game have I ever been like, wow, look at that, like in Hyrule Field. And like at in 1998, I did that all the time in, in Ocarina of Time. Um, you know, in in Breath of the Wild, we're doing it every all the time too. But like <laughs> this this one, no, you know, it's just it feels like the same same place, the same things in it everywhere you go. Yeah. So I, I kind of want to move us along out of Hyrule Field into Lake Hylia and and where we're you know get on the bridge the the bokoblin does the burning bridge trick which i i thought was a cool cinematic piece anyway or at least a, yeah it's a good way to like push you forward mm-hmm. and um how like <laughs> i was gonna ask how do you feel about seeing lake hylia drained like this and then i remember yeah we already saw that in ocarina of time also so like uh how how many beat beat for beat story moments are we just pulling hey, straight Matt. from ocarina of time into this game hey matt hey what this is looking strangely familiar. <laughs> it's because we've been, been here, here before. before. <laughs> We're going <laughs> in circles. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's our Lord of the Rings reference there for the it week. Is. Yeah. No, um, honestly, I, one thing I want to talk about real quick, though, is the moment where it makes you jump off the bridge to get away from the fire. Yeah. Which I think is a really cool cinematic moment, but I kind of had questions about, like, how many people just kind of knew to do like, that seems like a thing you shouldn't be doing. Yeah. It seems, I mean, surface tension of water from that high up should kill you. So, you know, (laughs) just some questions there, but Uh you know, (laughs) video game logic. It's fine. I think Midna basically tells you, right? Yeah. She says, she says like, we've got to get off this bridge. And so like, I think that's your, does she, I just went and did it because I knew that that's what I was supposed to do. So I might've missed the prompt. Yeah. She, she says something as soon as the bridge lights on fire, she's like, we've got to find a way to get off this bridge. And you're just like, okay, well, there you go. No, I, I do think, so Lake Hylia as a location in this game, I think actually looks really cool. This version of Lake Hylia, I think does work really well as a space that feels huge and mm-hmm. it has like a lot of magnitude to it um I, I i do think it's really interesting i i just like a continuity of the space from ocarina of time to this one i know that's not like our primary concern but it's like it is interesting to me that even when the lake is full quote unquote mm-hmm. it still only looks like it's half 
full. Yeah, yeah. like it doesn't it's, come up to the bridge. The bridge is still yeah. like a solid, probably like 300 meters above the water. Right, yeah, exactly. Like it's, it's, yeah. it's huge, yeah. It's interesting. But like, I, I really do like this incarnation of Lake Hylia. There's a lot of fun stuff to get up to around here. Um, and I do appreciate the similarities that it does have to Ocarina of Time's version of Lake Hylia. Yeah, I, mean, I agree. In, in the version of the game that we're playing, Matt, obviously it's on the other side of the map than what it should be. But I was looking at the map and flipping it in my mind, and I was like, okay, yeah, an Ocarina of Time. Like, Hylia's over here, and it kind of connects. You follow the river up to Zora's Domain. And then Gerudo Desert's off over to this side, yep. and you can see it, it from there. It's, it's, like, it's roughly roughly right, yeah. Yeah, sure, right. So, I, you know, I think that all of that stuff is is pretty cool. Um, I really like the location of Lanayru's Spiritual Spring yes. versus the other two. I, I also really liked yeah. that one. I think I think Lanayru's spiritual spring is really unique and cool. Um, the the similarities between Ordona, Faron, and Elden's springs I think was was a neat um, narrative through line. Like oh, it, it's it has a visual identity that you immediately know what it is, and I think that's useful early on in the game. You're like oh. This is this is the thing that I'm supposed to be looking for. So I think that that's useful. And I like that they mix that formula up visually. And um, I also think that it's appropriate to Lanayru being he feels like the chief of the of the light spirits because he's got the largest area. He seems to be the largest. He's got the most grand spring and he's the one that imparts the whole story about the um, fused shadows to you. He's, so a, he's a lot more land rich than the other light spirits. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. He's he's got he's got a high real estate value. Yes. Yeah. Um, yes. <laughs> good for him. He, he invested properly back when land was real cheap. <laughs> he bought it real low and now it's just appreciated over time. So he's really like leaning into that generational wealth concept. Exactly yeah. right. Yeah. <laughs> good for him. Anyway, um, I, I really like Lanayru's spring. Um, and I think it's interesting that you don't just get to go straight to it. Like as much as I don't, and I think now we can move back into the conversation about Zora's domain. I'm just sorry. I'm trying to like steer the no, podcast okay. in okay. a more uh, linear direction. Keep us on track, Matt. Trying my best. Um, like, I think it's interesting that we don't do the formulas mixed up again with not going straight to the spiritual spring and getting the vessel of light. You have to like unlock it by doing a thing. And I like that. I don't think the thing that they made you do really emotionally works back to what y'all were both saying before I turned the pod car around and uh, like it seeing Zora's domain frozen in ice flying up the river, flying up the dry river bed while cool was like kind of neither here nor there for me. And then getting up there is like, Oh, this again. And like, it's just the emotional, you know, you know what the, you know what the bird slash fell beast uh, flights up Zora's river felt like to me, Matt. No, tell me. You won't actually, I don't think, get this. Max, okay. this might mean something to you. <laughs> These felt like a section of the game Bomberman Hero with the soundtrack of Rayman 64. I totally remember both of those games. What are you talking about? We played those a ton. Okay. Well, I haven't played Bomberman Hero, so it means more to Matt than me. Yeah! yeah. There you go, Matt. <laughs> I win. I don't. Bomberman uh, Hero is one of those. So actually, Bomberman Hero and Rayman 64 were like frequent flyer blockbuster rents yes, for me. Yes, we rented those games a lot. And I... 
I've played Rayman 64 as an adult and I actually still really like it. But um, Bomberman Hero, I would need to go back and check that out again and see if there's actually anything there. I remember thinking it was great, but I don't know if that's just because yeah, like as also a kid, 10. all video games were great to wow, an extent. I did not know there was a Bomberman game for the N64. Yeah, there were two. There was mm-hmm. Bomberman 64, which I did not vibe with. I as a, as a 10 year old, I could never understand how to play it. Um, but then Bomberman Hero was like more of an adventure game and you had like multiple Bombermans that you could do that yeah, had different and abilities like ships, and there were like flights. Yeah, you got to you got anyway. to fly a ship that shot bombs and then they <laughs> dropped like you were basically flying a Y wing. Yeah. But anyway, the cool. sound the soundtrack for these little snippets is is straight out of Rayman 64. Yeah, uh, I remember. Or, uh, excuse me. Rayman to the Great Escape. It yeah, was not oh, Rayman man, I 64. remember that game. That was a lot of fun. Yeah, it was awesome. Um but anyway, th- th- these little flight sections are weird to me. Like, it's not that I disliked them. They were fine. Tonally, they're odd. Tonally, they don't make sense with the rest of the game. Like, it's it's very weird. Yeah. I'm just wondering what the decision was, like, what the decision-making process was like to get us to this point. Because I don't recall us doing this again in the game after this point. And even if we do maybe do something like this one more time... It just feels so incongruous with like, I don't know, general Zelda design philosophy. I, 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 I mean, did this the, did this zig where it should have zagged for you as well, Max? Yeah, it, it was. It, honestly, it was just kind of annoying. Um, totally weird. Gameplay is clunky. It's really frustrating when you your fell beast doesn't control how you want it to and you run into a wall like 90 percent of the way through it. Uh, and then start all over again. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I will say the punishment for failure is like surprisingly lenient. Like no hearts lost, no game overs can be had here. I don't think it's just kind of like, Hey, we really want you to do this correctly and we're not going to punish you super harshly if you don't, but you really do have to do this right. So we're just going to keep putting <laughs> you back to the beginning of it. It's okay. Take as much time as you need. Uh. There is a there is a mini game later on where you go back down this river and you're like shooting balloons or something. But I don't remember if you're on a bird or on a boat. You might be on a boat at that point. So maybe it's not setting anything up. But it it just it, it feels like a very weird aside for to, to just like slot into the very middle of this whole section. And I, I guess maybe the impetus for this was just. We have Zora's domain separated from Lake Hylia by such a vast expanse of like land. We need to have something that gets you up there. Um, I feel yeah. I feel like a warp tunnel probably would have done it just fine. But what do I know? <laughs> you you climbed into a hole and like in Zora's domain in Ocarina of Time and popped out in Lake Hylia and it didn't bother no one. I know, right? So anyway, um, look, it, it was fine. You know, it took me. 10 minutes combined maybe to do both of these. So it's not putting me out too much. I just, I do think it's a little strange. Um, Zora's domain is interesting to me. I, so by the, by the end of this chunk of game, I had still not been to Zora's domain free of the twilight. Like you go there and you thaw it out. Right. And then you have to go back again to get the bugs but I still don't really have a familiarity with this location past you getting rid of the twilight. Cause I, I just, I never went back up there. It was way far out of the way. Um, and I don't know, like I, I, I think 
there, there's a there's a kernel of an idea here that I keep coming back to that I that is really bugging me. Where not getting the foundational familiarity with any of these major temple regions of the map is creating somewhat of a negative experience for me. Um, just in terms of me like creating emotional bonds with this world and with its spaces. I don't know. Maybe I'm crazy. Maybe no one else feels that way. No, no, I, I feel exactly the same way. Um, I think I mentioned way earlier that I don't feel emotionally invested in the Zoras. Uh, and that is definitely true. Like I kind of just, I feel like I'm, I'm a rock skimming over Lake Hylia here. <laughs> um, yeah. Right. Like I, and Zora's domain is is kind of this weird, very vertical, hard to traverse. Like it doesn't feel like a town, doesn't feel like a place where these characters live. Um, and then you kind of don't really get to meet any of them. And then oh, you meet a ghost of a character that you never get to meet alive. Um, Canonical first appearance of a red Zora, though. This is a this is a Mifa forerunner. Yeah, it's true. Is cool. I mean, she's got a really cool design. Yeah, her character model is cool. Cool looking character. Yeah, Yeah. Rutella looks really cool. And I do like uh, this whole um, this whole plot line of rescuing Prince Rallis and kind of putting the spirit of Queen Rutella to rest. I do like that. I think that all of this is uh, it's a it's a side quest. I, I can't even call it a side quest because it's necessary, but like it's a, it's a rabbit trail that feels almost Majora's mask in its implementation. Like there's maybe, maybe it's just, be, I, I hate to pull this card because I know people think it's insufferable, but maybe, maybe like as a parent, it just was kind of speaking to me a little bit more. Right. Mm-hmm. But like, I don't know. I, I, latched on to queen rutella as a character and i was kind of invested in like yes i want to save your son and put your spirit to rest and it, like prince rallis himself is actually kind of a tragic character right like both of his parents have died in the not too distant past yeah and he's now an orphan and is now the king of the zoras and yeah so i'm like this was all working pretty well for me i don't know matt how you felt about it i mean it, like it was it was fine like I'm, i wasn't emotionally invested in any of it it was it was to me it was just like all right i've got to go do this thing now um what it go ahead max Oh, no, no, you should finish your thought. Yeah, so, I like, all that it really boils down to for me is it left me with a lot of questions about, like, why why do the Zoras go to Kakariko Village for their final resting place? That doesn't make any sense. It's because they have a magic tunnel that leads straight from Lake Hylia to <laughs> the graveyard, I guess? Are you serious? Yeah, if you, so once you get the water bombs, if you go down, like, the pool that's in the the Zora grave back mm-hmm. there. Yeah. You can blow up a rock mm-hmm. and it takes you straight from that to Lake Hylia. What? Yeah. It's like, it, I mean, gameplay perspective. I think what they were wanting was like, Hey, you have the armor that you need to go do the temple. Now, now you can just go back quickly go straight to the temple. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> how, how far did you walk so, Matt? How far did you so, walk? Well, Jesus. <laughs> my fun story about the water bombs is I, I went to Kakariko village. I was like, Oh, Barnes is selling the water bombs, but I'd have to replace my normal bombs with them. And I don't want to do that. So I didn't grab them. And then I had to trek. And then I went back to, went to the, uh, uh, temple and realized I needed them. And I had to go all the way back up, which involved another ouch. Can we just, another bird. can we talk about Barnes's whole bomb inventory situation? Because I, 
Look, for one thing, I just want to say I think it's really cool that this game gives you several different kinds of bombs to choose from. Yes. I think that's really awesome. And this is an extension of a larger point I have about things that happen in this section of game, which is I like the increased freedom of action that you have when you're in the water in Twilight Princess versus Ocarina of Time (laughs) as a like you can use your sword. You can use bombs like there's a lot of stuff you can do, um, which is great. I like that Barnes has different kinds of bombs. I'm just wondering why it was a necessity to have this like trade buyback sequence buyback mechanic. Yeah, it was weird. Um, why why can I not just have like a, a bomb satchel and I just keep various inventories of different bombs within that? And then an extension of that point for me is why would I not just keep water bombs all the time? Yeah, there's no downside. Yeah, like, I think you you, ha- you have you less inventory. Yeah, less inventory. Yeah. But they give you so many. I was going to say, like, is that ever really going to set me back? I mean, yeah, I mean, I don't think so. But we, we've again gone past our mark. We have we're now back in human link form. <sighs> All right, Matt, turn the car around. <laughs> turn the pod car around briefly. Uh, very briefly. What do we have left in Twilight? We got the we, bug. The big, yeah, the big, bu- the big bug, bug fight. And I want to talk about Lene Rue's um, story. Oh, well, I want to that, talk about that, those two that things. That does make a yeah. difference. Yeah. So that we're, is, we're turning this important. car around, boys. All right. All okay. right. Uh, so big, big boss, queen bug. Any thoughts? I have no thoughts. It was whatever. No. Cool. Mm, it feels exactly like fighting the shadow beast. Yeah. It's it's because you fight it the same way. Yeah. And and pretty much in the same place, right? Like, like, I mean, it, yeah. 20 feet away from yeah. each other. I mean, yeah, <laughs> it, it really highlights how. Uh, limited the combat experience as Wolf Link is. Yeah, totally basically. agree. Cool. All right. So now I, I do want to talk about Lene Rue's story. So I I think Lene Rue's spooky tale. Yeah, it's very spooky. Um, I really like this sequence. I think this is my second favorite sequence in the entire game of Twilight Princess that I can currently remember, uh, cinematically, story wise, etc. Um. Like just the the spooky vibe of the music, the way that it starts out being hopeful. We get another uh, retread of the creation mythology of Hyrule with the goddesses and the creation of the Triforce in the Sacred Realm. All that's pretty standard. I thought it was really cool cinematically that the Hylians are um, portrayed by Link and Ilya. And then like when when the story starts going bad, Ilya like tries to straight up shank link and goes like all white eyes and scary. And then you get some shadow link action in there. And, and like all of this was really, really cool. I I liked it a lot. So twilight princess has kind of an internet reputation as being the spooky Zelda game. And I don't necessarily disagree, but I do wonder how much of that is just down to people remembering this. Yeah. They just remember this one thing and it's like, Oh yeah, that was really creepy. Yeah. Uh, Okay. Okay. So I have a quote to read to you guys. Yes. It has a very minor spoiler, but it's mostly just a tease of something that comes much later. I'll spoiler out the actual spoiler part, but the question uh, from the interviewer was, Please tell us more about your intentions behind the thing with Zant's neck after spoiler. Hmm. Uh, and Aonuma says, 10 years later, the time has finally come to reveal the truth, dot, dot, dot. The truth is, dot, dot, dot. The interviewer says, yes. And then Aonuma says, to be honest, I'm not sure either. It was a mystery to most of the staff, too. And then here's the relevant part. 
He says, the leader of the team that created that scene was well known for being a bit of a lone wolf when it came to making cutscenes. We wanted to make the best of those qualities in him, so we had him make all of the cutscenes for Twilight Princess. When he made that one, I couldn't help thinking, the neck, the neck, but I had immense faith in him. Anything he made must be art. I remember thinking that I just didn't get it, so I didn't say anything at the time. <laughs> uh, Look, you know, here, here's here's the thing. Here's the thing. At the very tail end of this season, we'll circle back to elements of that and discuss whether or not there's success to be found there. Um, but I do think that in, within the scope of this one cutscene. I do think what it manages to do very successfully is somehow like just make you feel the danger of the fused shadow as Laneru is trying to explain it to you um, and also makes you really feel the historical importance and danger of the the Twilight tribe, like the sorcerer tribe that was banished. Something about like the surrealist imagery that's happening here combined with like the you know, the, the characters that you've already come to know, like there's something so jarring about that, that this is actually, I, I think, a very effective communication of the stakes of the game in a in a really weird, surreal way. Um, I do think it's kind of impressive how successful it is. And I think there's a reason that it sticks in people's memories the way that it does. And at the same time, it manages to be a very good reintroduction to the creation myth of Hyrule as told in <laughs> Ocarina of Time. Which I think is the last time Din, Furor, and Nehru are mentioned in a 3D Zelda game. Anytime after this, the closest I think we ever get is in... A, you know, they're kind of uh, the the extension of those names, which is their namesakes. Yeah, Faron, Elden, Laneru. But you're right. I don't think the goddesses themselves are mentioned in any game after this, which is very interesting. Um, so part of the reason this cutscene works is because of our prior emotional investment in the character of Ilya and our Link's relationship with her. Right. Like, so we're getting back to that. Like, this game does this interesting thing where they are very very good and dedicated to the task of making you emotionally invested in the Ordon villagers and to a lesser extent the Kakariko villagers like the three of them that are left alive um but uh which makes the failure with the Zora just way more jarring because elsewhere the game is so good at building your emotional investment and showing you life in the places before the disaster happens it's just like it's a weird omission the the way they handle Zora. Yeah, yeah. No, it it definitely is. I don't know. I mean, Matt. What, so to me, this cutscene feels like a, a a big pivot for the game. We haven't had anything quite this creepy before. Like we had, we've had some general ominous tones and vibes right just by virtue of being in the twilight we've had moments of felt danger right sure. especially like in kakariko village when we're we're using our wolf sense and we're hearing the kids and renato talking and like we feel we feel that danger um but this is something completely different this this is verging much more into outright horror how did it work for yeah, you? Yeah, no, I, I really liked it. I think it's it's interesting to 
It's an interesting thing that we're chasing this power that the light spirits, I mean, obviously light, good, darkness, shadow, bad, generally speaking, like those are very clearly delineated things throughout almost all of literature. (laughs) And this dark power that Laneru is talking about, he gives a very explicit evidence about like this thing was used by a tribe of dark magicians to almost take over the world. And in the telling of the story, it like implies that it corrupts people to turn against their dearest friends. It would be so powerful to corrupt Ilya to turn against Link for Link to turn against himself. It, crucially, Link never turns against Ilya, but Link does turn against himself. And, um, you know, seeing the dark specter of Link and the the, the magic wielders being in his form, yeah. like all of those things, it's a tale of like this will can corrupt you to your very core to turn you into someone unrecognizable. And like, we're still going to go chase it. And Lenaru even says like, I don't really know what else to do. Like, yeah, you kind of got to just be careful, I guess. Like if you're, if you're in such a dire state that this is the power that you're seeking, it's like, I don't know. It's not quite like a Jedi looking to the dark side for answers because it's it's not quite that. It is but a bit of a dark side cave moment, like a Dagobah cave. It is moment, very though. Dagobah cave. And oh, you're right. It's very Dagobah cave, except that instead of shunning that power, we still go look for it. So not 100% parallel, but we'll give it a 75% <laughs> parallel. Yeah, I'm going to go to the Dagobah cave. Luke is like, hell yeah, I want to go become a dark Jedi. <laughs> Let's I'm gonna, go, I'm gonna baby. go do some Darth Vader. Yeah. <laughs> Let's go, yeah. baby. Yeah, exactly. So, I, I, yeah, I think it's really good and the tale of warning about it is is really really fun this is i think this is the most memorable cinematic it's not my favorite but i think it's the most memorable <laughs> so here so here's a th- so here's the thing that i think is very interesting about this whole cutscene. i know that uh lore nerds really enjoy this one a lot because we get our first really good look at the fused shadow here which has got some big us aesthetic similarities to a certain malevolent face wear. That Majora's Mask. It yeah. literally it has the face plate is the same. The eye motif is yeah. the same. And the mention of the dark sorcerers who used the fused shadow to harness their dark magic and wage war against the sacred realm or whatever. Uh, I, I do think it is really funny because the backstory for Majora's Mask as being a mask that was used by like this ancient dark tribe and their hexing rituals or whatever. Yeah. There's some, there's some fun similarities there and it's the kind of thing where people want there to be explicit confirmation of like, Oh, uh, Twilight Tribe is the same as the Majora's Mask people, and I want Majora was just the first. It was the creator of the fused shadows, right? Yeah, I don't feel that way, but I do appreciate these little echoes of things between Zelda games. I well, I, I think they're fun. I I totally agree. Um, when when uh, and and the other thing that the fused shadow looks like is Zonai architecture yes. it does yeah it does. We, we we talked about um, that a little bit in the first episode about how zant's armor is very zone ie yeah yeah when uh, here's the kingdom was revealed there were a bunch of interview like people were asking in interviews like is majora's mask gonna be part of this is the twilight tribe gonna be part of this so they like people were th- making the connection to majora's mask and getting excited about the possibility of it in tears of the kingdom because of these like, this little like breadcrumb trail of connections um, it's fun stuff which i don't get the impression was entirely 
unintentional. I mean, I no Max. I mean, I'm, you're you're the high rule historian. I'm sure you've got a quote for this, but I could guarantee <laughs> that I've seen a quote at some point which says something along the lines of like. Yeah, you know, we sometimes do things that echo the design choices of past games, and we don't want to be too specific about what that exactly means. But yeah, I mean, I don't have a quote with that language in mind, but it it is kind of a sentiment that they've shared. Yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. Way to put him on the spot, Lyndon. You gotta you gotta let him prep for these kinds of things. <laughs> I know. I'm sorry. I'm very. sorry. He's got about a that. bot for this. Okay, like he he could probably put in some search commands if we just gave him some time. I know. <laughs> All right, Matt. You're the one who's keeping everything on the rails yes. right now. Where the hell are we? <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we we have uh, we just talked to Lanayru. Uh, we are now going to go talk to Ilya again and um, Telma because we have figured out that we can't get into Lake Bed Temple because we can't breathe underwater. Let's talk characters. Max, you mentioned earlier how you were finding a lot of the characters in this game to actually be better drawn, more interesting people than you recalled. To me, Telma is a really good example of this. Is that kind of where you're at as well? Oh, yeah. Um, Okay, I have another quote. Uh, Yes! (laughs) <laughs> about Telma. So Ishii Numa was asked who his favorite character in Twilight Princess is. And he said, my favorite character is Telma, the owner of the bar. We wanted to have more of a mature woman in the game, someone who could contrast with Link and be a more grown-up female character. There's this actress I like a lot and another who really inspired one of our designers. So we combined them and split the difference. And then he says, and so that led to Telma. And I thought, yeah, this is the one. I kind of like the idea of being scolded by someone like that. Yeah, I bet he <laughs> likes the idea of being scolded lots, by someone like that. Lots to unpack there. As, as I said in our Discord, the word for this week is bosom. Uh, oh. Boom. <laughs> the, 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 the design, the artistic design of Telma is very interesting. What look, I said early on in this season, Twilight Princess is the Renfair Zelda game. This is the and, most Renfair oh yeah. wench yes. that has ever Renfair. Absolutely. But I do think there is a lot of fun characterization that Telma has. Like yeah. th- there are there are a lot of fun mannerisms. I think that overall Twilight Princess has not been able to live up to Wind Waker so far in terms of just like the mannerisms of characters. Like they tend to feel a bit more artificial to me. But I think that Telma actually breaks out of that just a little bit. I think her character is very well portrayed. Like just her personality, like the I I think they they had a very specific personality in mind for her of being like a somewhat flirtatious. Yes, but also world wise and kind of owns the room when she's in it. Yeah, she, she definitely takes no guff. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think that that's successful. So my favorite thing probably about Twilight Princess's storytelling that I think it does better than any other Zelda game is that it has characters other than Link and Zelda who have agency in the story. Right. In most Zelda games, Link's the only one who does anything. And if anyone else does anything, it's Zelda who's doing things pretty much. Maybe there's like one other side character like Bruce. But Twilight Princess has a whole cast of characters that are all encountering the difficulties that are besetting Hyrule and also doing their own best as they can. 
Mm-hmm. So like we see it in Ordon Village, like the the weakling father who uses the hawk to attack you when you're a wolf. Like he's doing stuff, and Russell is active and doing stuff, and Renato takes action, and all the kids take action, and then Telma is our first hint of another set of characters that take a lot of action on behalf of Hyrule and help Link out, which is just not a thing we get to see too often. I really enjoy that about Twilight Princess. Yeah, I I completely agree. Um, Talking about Ilya, so we have a bit of a trope going on here, which is the the familiar character with complete amnesia. (laughs) Um, Yeah. And I... Here's the thing. I think that f- the purpose of this is to delay satisfaction of feeling like you've completely solved the issues of the Ordon Village children. Yeah. Right. I think they they didn't want to get to a point where you feel like you as the player have resolved that too quickly because that's still kind of one of the big emotional hinges on which this game turns. Right. That being said, Amnesia... I don't know. I it's not my favorite <laughs> plot device in the entire world. Um, I, I I think that this is totally fine. I think what's nice is that it does a lot to endear Ilya to us more as a character because we get the sense that like yes, this is a very benevolent character. Like we we do understand the concern that she has for Prince Rallis, right? And that serves as kind of the impetus for all of the events that follow, right? Us getting Prince Rallis back to. Renato and Ilya is kind of in a lot of ways the driving force for a lot of that. So I do think that this does good things for her character. Yeah, absolutely. Like like knowing that and uh Telma specifically pointing out that like she didn't even know who she was. She didn't know how she got here. She knew absolutely nothing except there was a young boy in trouble and she did everything she could to help him. And like that is really cool. It's the kind of the same thing that we see with Colin of young kid that's been bullied most of his life. And he goes out of his way to s- literally save one of the people who has bullied him for most of his life, saves her life, puts his own life at risk and becomes the hero. And in that moment. And so, like, I think it's it's another uh, aspect of that that Twilight Princess is really building on that I think is successful. Yeah. Yeah, I completely agree. Uh, let's uh, do we have any quick thoughts that we want to say about the cart sequence getting Rallis to Kakariko Village? The clunky horse controls made this extremely frustrating for me, like especially the second part where you're in the open field trying to get to Kakariko Village and the Kargaroks are dropping bombs. I had the hardest time and also i went into this with two arrows so i killed the boss bokoblin with my last two arrows and then i had no arrows so i was trying to use the boomerang (laughs) while on horseback oh no which wasn't it was horrible dude this was so frustrating like the clunky horse controls combined with no arrows combined with just all of it was was so horrible yeah this is all this was 10 minutes of gameplay that didn't really do it for me I don't know. I like the idea of it a lot. I think it's cool like to I think this type of combat heavy escort mission where there's there's really no way to fail it. Like as long as you are not just a total dote. I wish that this had been more like the um, 
oh crap, the Gorman brothers sequence in Majora's yes, Mask. Yes. Where they're chasing the milk cart. And, and you you're standing like, on the back yeah. of it and shooting. That would have been better. Yeah. yeah I wish I wish it had been more like Remove that. the clunky horse controls from the equation. Sure. And yeah. Max, was this <laughs> was was this doing anything for you at all? I, I actually really enjoyed this part. Really? Um I had a lot of fun with it. Like I think it's good as both a character moment and an action moment. Um Although, I mean, your guys' reaction is making me second-guess that a little bit. <laughs> <I> <laughs> Don't second-guess it. it. Enjoy uh, it. I mean, the key for it to me was mostly just see targeting really aggressively instead of trying to aim anything. And I had some trouble with the bombs at first until I realized I could just see target them with the boomerang and it would just home on them. Um, so that was the only part that was almost frustrating for me. It was trying to shoot them with arrows. Uh but uh, yeah, overall, I had fun. I will say, I think that there's a really fun mechanic here, which is using the Gale boomerang to put out the fires on the cart. Yeah, I like yeah. that. That You know, that in and of itself is pretty cool. And I'm always a fan of them finding a way to make the uh, items relevant. Right. Which in unique ways, which this might be the last time that that is true. Of the Gale boomerang. <laughs> uh, so <laughs> the the horse controls are bad. So, OK, step back. The horse controls are really good. Only when you are in a large, flat, open space. Which is almost great. Almost never. They basically designed the whole horse around the, like, two moments in the game where that's relevant, is what it feels like to me. Um, and the rest of the time, it is so annoying to control that damn horse. Yeah, I really should have named this horse Cat this horse Catherine instead of Epona because this, this horse is not endearing itself to me at all. <laughs> Epona deserves better. Epona deserves better for sure. You're not a Catherine, the horse stand. E- no. <laughs> Epona in Ocarina of Time would have been just as annoying to control if they ever put you in situations like these, but they never did. So it was fine. Yeah, <laughs> that's fair. Okay. We have the Zora armor now. It's time to go to the temple. Do we have, I mean, we've been in this section for a long ass time. Yeah. Do we have anything else we want to say? It's a big ass section. It, it's so huge. I feel like we skipped over a lot of stuff and I mean, I mean <laughs> we, we skipped over Castletown, which like Castletown is just Ugh. bustling. It's, it's, I don't want to talk about Castletown anymore until we have more time to explore it as human link. That's fair. Yeah. Free of the twilight. Totally I fair. have very strong opinions about this Castletown and I'll leave them for next episode. There All you right, go. That fair sounds enough. good. Uh, any- so the last thing before the lake bed temple that I want to throw out there is I really enjoyed going back under the water. Because, like, the last few 3D Zelda games I've played were Tears of the Kingdom, Breath of the Wild, Skyward Sword. Um, I guess Skyward Sword, you go into the water. And it's terrible. But yes, um, I enjoy really exploring bad. underwater in this game in a way that I wish they had it in Tears of the Kingdom. I actually totally agree with that, yes. Fair enough. I think that that is one way in which Breath of the Wild and Tears of the Kingdom are notably behind what we consider to be status quo for Zelda games. Yeah. So, yep. There you go. Cool. That's a good segue. All right. Let's go ahead and get into part three, which is the dungeon map where we talk about this week's dungeon from mechanics to music and more. The dungeon of the week is this game's water temple, which might also be Ocarina of Time's water temple. A little unclear. (laughs) Sort of more or less. Uh huh. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So when I said at the top of the episode that it felt very, very appropriate to have Mr. Max Nichols on for this one, uh, given that his first appearance on this show was in the Water Temple episode. 
of season one. Uh, I meant that from the from the bottom of my soul. This dungeon is a fun and interesting dungeon that I can't wait to talk a little bit more about. Going to give the rundown on the layout and arrangement of the dungeon real quick, as we've been trying to do over the last few weeks. So the Lake Bed Temple operates on what Matt would call a hub and spoke system yes where the entire dungeon for the most part is organized around a central hub room that is two stories tall and then that room has got several branching paths going off of it past the central hub the dungeon has got a uh, an east wing and a west wing traversal through the dungeon requires that you open waterways from both the east and west wings into the central area uh getting the main item of the dungeon which is the hook shot allows for increased traversal and allows you to rotate the staircase in the very center of the dungeon uh it rotates 360 degrees all around the main middle room and allows uh, access to the top and bottom floors, depending on which way it's facing enemies in this dungeon include the blue tektites uh, choose, which are uh, new to twilight princess in this dungeon and actually have some pretty cool properties, which I want to talk about here in just a second. Uh, let's see. We get helmosaurs, which are a classic Zelda enemy reappearing here. We have a, uh, you know, fair amount of keys, stuff like that. Um, Mini boss is Matt. Will you look up the name of the mini boss for me? Yeah, one second. Okay. Mini boss was the aforementioned belly flop tadpole frog dude who actually looks very similar in his design to the um, the gods in Wind Waker. Uh, the mini boss looks pretty similar <laughs> to Cyclos and Zephos when you when you look at him. So that's actually really true and very disturbing. So I'm not really sure what's up with that, but. Uh, yeah, uh, we got a mini boss in this dungeon, and the boss is Morpheal, uh, which is a completely submerged boss fight. Traversal in this dungeon requires a lot of swimming, a lot of iron boots, and a lot of water bombs, which, as Max was mentioning earlier, is a requirement for you to even get in here. Um, if you're if you made some weird decision to go switch out your water bombs for regular bombs after gaining access to this dungeon, then. <laughs> Go all the way back to Kakariko Village. You need the water bombs. Um, they're they're a very big deal in here. And also a compulsory use of bomb arrow combination in here, which I, I think is usually an optional thing in Zelda games, um, but is definitely something that you have to do in this dungeon, which I thought was very interesting. This uh, mini boss is called the Deku Toad. The Deku Toad? The Deku Toad. What does he have to do with the Deku? I don't know. At all. I don't know. Interesting. I'm just telling you what it says. All right. Cool. Uh, all right. I trust you. Okay. Max. <laughs> <laughs> we So, um, the Ocarina of Time Water Temple, I believe that you have said on the podcast several times before, is one of your favorite Zelda dungeons of all time. Like, you respect it quite a lot. Is that correct? Yeah. How do you feel like Lake Bed Temple measures up? <laughs> uh, uh, so I really love this dungeon. Um, it has a lot of the elements that I enjoy in my dungeoneering. Uh, and I, I think it is probably viewed by Nintendo as a better dungeon than Water Temple. And I find it less memorable than the Water Temple, but that's probably because I was quite young when I played the Water Temple. Uh 
But um, this this one is it kind of has a lot of the things that make the water temple good without a lot of the things that make the water temple frustrating. Um, so we, we can dig into that a little bit more. Uh, so the things I like about Zelda dungeons when they're at my favorite is like I want I want them to make me think about the dungeon as a full space. Like I want to be forced to think not just about the room that I'm in but about how it connects to other rooms and how mechanics such as water flow um, are related, uh, force uh, cause this room to be related to other rooms. Uh, and then I want to have to think spatially. I want to think to myself like, okay, what's above me? What's below me? Uh, like where am I in relation to these things? So those are things I love in Zelda games. This dungeon has that in spades. Like you're constantly having to think about like where you are and where the mechanics are. Uh, but unlike the water temple in Ocarina of Time, the 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 mechanics that like interconnect the rooms are mostly either water flowing from the sources of water that you eventually turn on, or they are the staircase in the middle that you can rotate freely, kind of sort of freely. Uh, so one of the things, big things that's different here is the when you turn on the water that's it it's on now you don't have to think about turning it back off again you don't need to be like you don't need to be like rubik's cubing it where you're like okay in order to get to over here i need to put the whole dungeon in this configuration like it doesn't like that's a very high bar to ask of players um but these these mechanics are like latching once they're done they're done uh so overall the experience to this dungeon is relatively linear like there's usually only one thing or two things at a time that you can even do but in order to figure out what you need to do you need to like figure out where can i go now that i couldn't go before because i've turned on water or i've gotten the hook shot yeah i was um, gonna say i think the, i think the trial and error of a lot of these things uh, does add some length, right? Like trying to figure out how do I get the stairs rotated in the right direction, keeping mental memory of I've seen this thing in this room. It seems like I need to raise the water level in order to make something happen here. And then remembering to revisit that place once you have the water flow redirected to that point. Um, do you think that this dungeon fits within your definition of being a puzzle box dungeon? definitely yeah okay right because you're because each time you unlock the flow of water from either the east or the west wing you are permanently changing the dynamics of the dungeon it's irrevocable at that point yeah if if it just had those um it would still feel like a puzzle box dungeon in a lot of ways but it wouldn't meet my definition but because it has that plus the staircase um, it quite easily fits the definition to me. Yeah. Matt, overall top level impressions of this dungeon. What did you think? Yeah, I, I really like this. I think Max's general statement of it has a lot of the things the Ocarina of Time Water Temple had that were good without having many of the things that were frustrating, I think is very accurate to how I felt about it. Um, I, I'm not going to talk too much about the mechanics because I think Max covered a lot of that. So, and I agree with him wholeheartedly and i'm not gonna even yes and him so just yes um but aesthetically 
I think this uh, temple is is really really cool. I think it's gorgeous. I I love the um, mosaic art style that's around all of the door frames, the teal and aqua colors, the uh, stylized carved architecture of everything that's in the dungeon, from the railing to the archways over the doors to the uh, to the staircase itself. It's all heavily stylized. I think it looks really cool. Um, the atmosphere of the dungeon really works. Um, I think the music was a little too muted in my opinion. I, I could have used more music yeah, plus one. Yes. Thank you, Max. It's really tough to be Ocarina of times water temple music. Right. So like, I think, I think I needed the musical cues really could have leaned in more onto the aesthetic and the vibe of the temple for me. Um, I no, I I really like this temple. I had some minor gripes. Do you want me to get into the gripes, or do you want to give your brush thoughts? Before yeah, no, I I really did enjoy this a lot as well. Um, as Matt was kind of alluding to earlier in the episode, I actually spent a fair amount of time in this dungeon. Like it really did. I, I, mean, I was is, in this dungeon for two hours. Yeah, th- this is the fourth time, fifth time, maybe that I've done this dungeon, and I had an idea in my head of what was all required to get from point A to B to C and whatever. Um, but it still required a lot of trial and error for me. Like I don't have it committed to memory the way that I do Ocarina of times water temple. And so, you know, we're talking about the things that are frustrating about the water temple, right? Where the water level is consistent throughout the dungeon and it's able to be raised and lowered. And there's trial and error there, right? Where if you don't get it right, in order to do whatever thing you're chasing at the time, then you have to redo the whole thing and whatnot. Right. It has a lot of one-way paths where like, oh, I had to go through this whole journey in order to get the water to this spot. And then I got here and then, oh, I changed the water and now I have to like redo it all if I want to come back here. Exactly. Um, That's a totally valid comparison. I don't have that problem in Ocarina of Time's Water Temple because I know it by heart. So I tend to make it (laughs) through there pretty fast. But but so this this dungeon, though, it did require a little bit of what I would call fun trial and error. Like I was I was having to be very vigilant about little things in this dungeon like keeping track of okay i'm off in the west wing but there's multiple doors i see a waterway and i passed by this one thing that looks like i need the water to be flowing through it let me go check that out again once i actually have the water turned on uh that sort of thing like this dungeon has a lot of that um attention to detail will really save you time here uh it it won't necessarily help you to find things that you would otherwise miss in the way that maybe the forest temple did right like in the forest temple we had like pieces of heart and stuff that you would completely miss unless you were like noticing some trickety trick thing that was happening in a certain room this dungeon is not exactly the same way but like you will just spend a lot of time going back and forth in it if you're not paying attention to all the different like ways that the room that you're in could be affected by the level of the water and i really like that i i that that level of critical thinking being imposed on this whole experience i think That's one of the things that creates a a great Zelda dungeon to me is the mechanics are straightforward. They're not convoluted. They're not complicated. But you just have to be paying attention to the way that they affect the area around you. And I think I think this dungeon does that really well. Um, 
And on top of that, it actually manages to sprinkle in a decent amount of combat. I mean, I wouldn't call it a combat gauntlet dungeon, but you know, you're 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 meeting friction by a lot of enemies mm-hmm. the entire time that you're in here. Yeah. No, I I totally agree with that. I think <coughs> there's a lot of like generally speaking trash mob ads in the form of like chews and there's some keys that are running around this is the introduction of stalfos or uh, not Stalfos, lizalfos this is the introduction of lizalfos these lizalfos look metal as hell they've got like helmets and their tails they are look, actual axe blades they look crazy cool but are total pushovers like one thing we <laughs> sure. one thing we didn't talk about in the plot recap this week and i think we probably won't in the plot recap moving forward is more um golden wolf uh combat tactics right so we got one this week in the side roll uh backslash it's called the backslash super useful yeah if you do a backslash on these lizalfos they get knocked to the ground and then you do a finishing move like i didn't take a single hit from any one of these lizalfos <laughs> so like they look crazy cool but are total pushovers um so i i totally agree it's not a combat gauntlet by any means but there is good enemy density and there is good combat density that i enjoy in a dungeon i think a dungeon without a combat combat is three quarters of a dungeon so yeah I, I i like that yeah no it was it was definitely fun enough um i mean yeah so max i i want to give you some room here to kind of go into a little bit more detail about the strengths and weaknesses of this dungeon and what you feel like it does really well yeah uh okay so just because it's useful to contrast it talk about the water temple a little bit again so some of the stuff that was painful about the water temple was uh it was hard to tell where you were because rooms often looked the same and it was very labyrinthine um like you would shift where you were by going up or down a level then the access would change based on the water level like it was just hard to tell remember where you were uh and Two, of course, it was painful to go to your sub menu to use the iron boots all the time, which is not super relevant here. Uh, <laughs> I, I do, I, I do have a point that I want to make about that, and somebody remind me to come back to that here in just a minute. Will do. And then there's the stuff we already talked about, which is the you know the one way switches and one way traversal. So of all those things I mentioned, this temple doesn't have any of them. There's like a little bit of some of it, like. Um, you can fall down from an upper floor to a lower floor and then have to take a long way around. And that can be frustrating. But that's the closest this one ever gets to the whole like redoing a big traversal section that the Water Temple had. Um, oh, and there's another thing. Uh, Water Temple had a bunch of times when you had to like look around to find easy to to miss details, like a switch that's hidden behind something or... Uh, you know, something where you need to get the right angle to see it. And this dungeon does that in a much more foolproof way. Yeah, Ocarina of Time's uh, Water Temple has the notorious hidden passage under the floating platform thing. Yes, right? like that one is terrible. <laughs> it's so hard to, to see it, and it's like totally not your fault if you don't see it. Um, so there's this concept in game design in spatial reading called single scan versus multi-scan environments. And the basic idea is like you go into a room in a game and you scan around it with your eyes once. Like you just, you uh, shift the camera around to see the whole room once. 
if you if you saw all the information that you need to see at that single quick glance, that means it's a single scan environment. Um, if you need to like look again or continue looking around while you're in there and like there's stuff you might miss uh, unless you look at it, like unless you are in the right mindset and you notice it, then that's a multi-scan environment. Um, and art style is a big part of this. Uh, almost all of the Wind Waker is single scan. It's really hard to miss anything in the Wind Waker, even on a quick glance. Uh, but in this game, the art style is more detailed and you often need to like continue looking around you while you're in a room to like to finally notice all the stuff like, oh, that's Ivy over there. I can claw shot too. you might not notice that on the first glance. It might take several glances before it comes to you. Um, and I think that works really well in this dungeon. Like there's a lot of rooms where you go into them and like you kind of look around, you see the big mechanisms. You're like, okay, there's a door there. There's a, a gear that's moving over there. I need to get from here to there. How do I do it? And then you have to look again and you find stuff that you didn't see the first time because you weren't trying to figure out how to get to that far off point yet. And now you're trying to find a path. And so this dungeon often does the thing where they show you one step you can take. Like there's vines over there but you can't tell how it's going to get you to the faraway point. You just know that it's a place you haven't gone yet. And then you get there and like, maybe you travel to another ledge and you have to look around again. So you have this cycle of having to rescan the environment over and over again in order to figure out where to go. And it creates this really cool feeling of like you're fighting against this place, right? This isn't a theme park that was designed for you. This is a place that like it's hostile to you. And you need to like conquer it and figure out how to like finagle your way through these spaces that were not designed for you. Which, um, which to me, I mean, honestly, all that does is reinforce the the fictional importance of this space, which is what I love about a lot yeah. of Dungeons and Zelda games. Like we, we are told in this chunk of game that the lake bed temple was previously like a holy spot for the Zoras and it's now been infested by monsters and whatnot. But this like this space serves a purpose. It's per, it serves a specific purpose, and everything that you're kind of saying right now is it's one of those things that kind of just lends to immersion, which I know is not a lot of people's primary concern in a Zelda game, but it's something that I specifically really appreciate in a Zelda game, and I think Matt feels the same way. Yeah, absolutely. I like I said, even in the plot recap, like diving into. Hit diving. <laughs> that was actually totally unintentional. <laughs> yeah. Um <laughs> diving into the lore and the backstory of what these spaces mean in context to the culture that they uh affect or represent or uh the, the space in which they affect or the space in which they exist and we're going to see this in arbiter's ground two weeks from now um like that is really cool when a dungeon is more than just a plot device space when it's when it's a lived in breathed in purposeful thing that you can understand and connect with on an emotional, uh, like, a, I mean, it's very shallow, but it's still an emotional level of understanding what it is. And I, I love that. And I think that this dungeon does that really well. 
I think a big part of what it does well is the boss room feels like it should have been like a holy place of, of sanctity of some kind. Like Where it maybe mostly some, just kind of feels like a basement. <laughs> yeah. And, and it, like this, this creature has taken it over and destroyed it and, and infested it with its evil and has turned it into not that. So like, it, I think that's really it cool. It was clearly an incredible feat of Zora architecture yeah, down there. Absolutely. Like th- this thing is like probably what a hundred meters deep and there's pillars going floor to ceiling and the walls are etched with, uh, you know, carta or, uh, with symbols and just like, it's, it's really cool. And it's just been abandoned. Cartouches. Thank you. Cartouches. That is the word I was looking for. It was a cartouche. Thank you. Uh-huh. Um, and it's been it's been desecrated by the spawn of Morpha, the Morpheal. We'll get back to that here in just a second. Um, one or two things <laughs> I want to mention real quick. One, uh, so getting back to the point that I was just saying, like I really want to say something about this. I completely agree. Uh, Iron Boots management has come a long way since N64 Zelda Ocarina of Time. I really appreciate that. I I do think that you spend a lot of time, at least me, I I don't think this would be any different on the GameCube version or any version of this game that you're playing. I was spending a lot of time juggling my inventory in this game or in this this dungeon uh, between the claw shot, the Iron Boots, the regular bow, which I use a fair amount, regular bombs just to use underwater, and then having to do your bomb arrow combine. Like I was I was just spending a lot of time in my inventory moving things around, and that was kind of a hassle. Um, I don't know if there's a better solution within the game's current systems just for the iron boots than what's happening here, which is that they're just assigned to one of your... Like on the N64, they would have been the the C buttons, right? But uh, I don't think there's any better way to do it, probably. Um, but, it, you know, it was something that, that was kind of irritating after a, a little bit of time. The other thing <laughs> is, um, so same criticism from last week applies here, which is that moving around in the iron boots is not fun. No, it sucks. Yeah. Uh, moving this slowly for this amount of time is just not my favorite and having to do it two weeks in a row was kind of a pain in the butt. Um, it's fine mostly because a lot of areas of this dungeon, you can choose to just not wear the iron boots and just swim around. Like sometimes you have to throw them on and that's fine. But, uh, there were a few sections like, so the chest, um, did you get, did you get the chest above the original Watergate? Yes. Okay. So did I. And I literally, I literally almost. It was a stamp. I thought it was a hard piece. That's the only reason I did it. I almost threw my controller through my TV. I flipped. I was so angry. (laughs) Yes. I was so angry. Yeah. The stamps weren't there in the original and they were actually a negative impact on the dungeons they were at. Massive negative impact. I hate them with a burning passion. I want them to die. Like, yeah, no, the stamps absolutely suck. And so basically what happens is one of so the very first water gate that you open, you don't have the hook shot at that point. And once you get the hook shot, you can there's a chest that you can see that you can go get. And I knew that there were going to be two heart pieces in this dungeon. I had one. And I thought to myself, other heart piece has to be that chest that was up there that I couldn't get. So I go back. 
the problem is that the water's flowing down the spiral staircase that leads all around this like three story room. And in order to climb to the top of the room where the chest is, you now have to wear the iron boots. And you've got like so you're moving at like 25 percent speed, if that. Yes. And you're just kind of like inching along all the way up this massive spiral staircase and as as ramp spiral ramp. And if we finally get to the top, use the claw shot to get up to the chest and it doesn't have a heart piece. It's got the stupid stamp. I don't even know what letter it was, but it doesn't matter because I can't use this thing anymore. Like, yeah, it doesn't matter. It's it's first some it, it, it's a part of some long forgotten Wii U online functionality that nobody used even when the Wii U was the primary console. And they're certainly not using it now. So completely useless, uh, it, just infuriating. But I mean, overall, like the the iron boots are I don't know. Do you think that there's a negative gameplay impact if you just make the player movement speed regular while you're underwater with or the at iron least, boots, Max? At least faster than it is now. Uh not really. Like there's a little bit to be said for the like uh I don't know, the the selling the f- the fantasy of big heavy iron boots, I guess, but <laughs> it's not worth it. It should you should just move faster. Like they did the thing where in the HD version they made you climb ladders twice as fast. They should have just done the same thing with the iron boots. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Glad we agree. Um, uh, the mini boss fight, Matt. How'd you feel about that? It was fine. I don't know. I had no strong feelings about that particular boss fight. I feel like this was a weird evolution of the um, multi eye mini. Yeah, boss I thought the Zelda same game thing sometimes. Yeah, yeah, the like the the specifically the ones that's in the top down Zeldas where you have to like hook shot the eyes off of things. Yeah, that's the first thing I thought of when I saw all the mini tadpoles. I was like, oh, it's like it's like an eye boss. And then he just shed all the tadpoles <laughs> and they ran at me and I just spun attack twice and killed all of them. And I was like, cool. And then hit the tongue, the, the tongue. Like, this is Zelda getting silly again. I just, hey, it's not an eye. It's a tongue. I know, but it's it's Zelda getting silly again. And like, I just I'm tired of Zelda being silly. I don't need you to be 100 percent of the time grown up. I just don't want you to be silly like monkeys slapping their butts and frogs sticking their tongues out as the weak point. Like, can we not do silly? I don't know. Maybe maybe I'm a killjoy, but this that's, I, think I just you find have more of a problem with this than most other people do. It's just it's just dumb. I don't know. It's it's just dumb to me. Okay. All right. Yeah, no, uh mini boss fight was fine. I one thing that I really appreciated here was the music. This is actually a thing that I've been meaning to mention about Twilight Princess that I haven't had a chance to well, I've had a chance to mention it before now, but I just keep forgetting to. I like how music, especially during combat sequences, has contextual changes where a thing that's happening in the fight causes the music to change. So when you're fighting this mini boss, there's like a, a theme that's happening. And then when it like shoots up to the ceiling and you see its shadow about to fall on you and do its belly flop thing, it's got this other musical track that cuts in where it's like, but up, but up, but up, but up, but up, it's like, it's like causing increased uh, feelings of urgency mid fight. And uh, the, the boss fights all do this too. Like, when you do a correct thing during a boss fight in Twilight Princess, then what typically tends to happen is the boss fight theme cuts out and then a 
Twilight Princessy version of the boss fight theme cuts in, where it's like, bum 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 bum. Yeah, while you're doing the correct thing to, you know, yeah. hurt the boss. <laughs> yeah, it's usually when it's a damage phase. The boss is vulnerable. Upbeat music plays. Go run and slash the tongue. Exactly. So yep. Uh, I actually it actually kind of annoys me. Um, the music because I feel like it uh, swaps around too fast, which I guess is just because I'm too good at the game. <laughs> um, but <laughs> like I feel like I feel like it's barely getting a chance to play one version of the song before it goes to the other. So it's kind of like this somewhat jarring, like cycling back and forth between the two in a lot of these boss fights yeah that's um, fair i think that that that's a classic argument of like how long did the game designers intend for this to take you to do and how long does it actually take for you to do i think they would have been better served keeping the tempo the same and just layering in different instruments yeah yeah, I think that sounds about right. Um, let's see. Dungeon proper before we get to Morpheal. Do we have anything else that we want to say? I mean, I, I, I think overall to me, this feels like a very, very good incarnation of a water dungeon in a Zelda game. I don't know if I want to say that I think it's better to me than the Ocarina of Time Water Temple, which I actually do really like. Um, I think that a lot of people probably would like it better. Uh, I don't know what that means exactly. I mean, I, I know that the water temple has a certain like dark glamour around it, um, <sighs> which, I, which I think is slightly undeserved. And I, think I don't that, think it's undeserved. I mean, I don't know. Dude, that original N64 water temple, you're 10 years old, trying to get your way through it. That thing was punishing. Yeah. Okay. Do, well, okay. So, Matt, do you feel like Lake Bed Temple is a better dungeon experience than the Ocarina of Time Water Temple? No, it's not as classic. Like, just, <laughs> just like straight out of the gate, it's not as classic. I don't think that. I think it's a great dungeon. I really do. I I actually think all of the three dungeons that we played in Twilight Princess so far have been good or great, like very good. This game I, has that reputation. Yeah, I, I don't think that any of them have surpassed my top three dungeons. Okay, well, I'm, we're at two hours and 30 minutes, but I have to ask, what are your top three dungeons? Uh, Ocarina of Time, Spirit Temple, Skyward Sword, Ancient Cistern. Hmm. Uh, and you know it's Stone, Stone Tower, Tower Temple. Temple. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Cool. Uh, Max, how about you? Do you feel like Lake Bed Temple is a better experience overall than the Water Temple from Ocarina of Time? Yes. Wow. Okay. Um. Not for me. <laughs> that that is actually but, the good clarification. It's not for me. Yeah. Yes. I, I think um, I think I will always like the Water Temple better, but that's that's so much of that is because of the time and place where I was when I played Ocarina of Time and, and where it was in comparison to the rest of the industry. Um, so this is like a little bit more normy compared to the other dungeons around it and the rest of the industry. And like it just doesn't stick out as much, but I think it is a better experience now. I think Ocarina of Time's Water Temple is an all-time great, and I, I do think that it is stronger 
overall than this one. But I do think that what this one manages to do is to harness the best parts of that experience and also just make it a bit more approachable, which I think just leads to a great experience overall. Like, I, I, I agree. This is a very good dungeon. I had a great time in it, and it challenged me. Like, I don't feel challenged in Zelda games as often as I would like to yeah. anymore. And this dungeon did challenge me, which I, I really do appreciate. It's definitely more user-friendly for sure. Yeah, 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 definitely. Let's talk about the boss. Let's get to Morpheal. So we we drop into the pit of aquaphobia. And I just have to say, I, I am not an aquaphobic person. <laughs> like, I don't mind deep water. I don't mind being in the open ocean. Like, I'm a, we're scuba divers, Matt. Yes. It, like, I've been I've been diving at 150 feet deep where you like I could not see, you know, past 75 feet out from me. Like I, you know, I've been diving with sharks. and You all literally stuff. can't like see I, the surface. From yeah, where, I mean, from like where I, you are in the water. None yes. of these things bother me. Um, uh, so there's something about being in very deep water in an enclosed underwater space. That is really freaky. I'm not sure what it is about that. That's just that. That's, that's called claustrophobia. But but it's not like closed in, right? I mean. This, but you also know that there's no easy way out. Yeah, I guess that's fair. Um, there, there's something about being able to see the artificial bounds of a, a massive area while you're underwater. That's just freaky. And a lot of this, too, is just like I, I mentioned this in the Discord earlier today, but one of my very formative early gaming memories was with the uh, Star Wars Shadows of the Empire game on the N64. And uh, I loved that game. I still love that game. It's great. But I was terrified of the Dianoga boss fight in the Coruscant sewers level, because it's a very similar fight to this where it plunks you down in like this giant tub. And there's this tentacled monster at the very bottom of it. And there's something about like the, the, I don't know, the volume of the water and the monster that's at the bottom of it. I don't know. It terrified me. It made me so scared. And uh, so, yeah, this boss fight stirred certain early memories for me. Um, but um, past that, I, I think I enjoyed the boss fight quite a lot. I get the impression that you feel very differently about it, Matt. So here's your time. <sighs> um, I'm going to go on a little bit of a rant. So, Max, I'll let you give your thoughts first. <laughs> um. I think this boss is super cool kind of aesthetically and I love the sense of dread as you go down into the boss room. Um, and I love the, the sheer scale of it, uh, which I think like this might be the biggest boss room of any Zelda game. Other than, uh, I guess maybe, I mean, seriously, uh, kingdom bosses are bigger, whatever. Uh, but up and up until tears of the kingdom, this is the biggest boss room of Zelda game. I think, um, and I, I kind of think all that's cool. And I think the boss is appropriately terrifying and uh, and it's kind of miserable to fight it uh, <laughs> just because of like water controls and like feeling like you can't tell where you need to be and not being able to see uh, both where you're trying to go clunkily with your swimming controls and also where the tentacles are coming from. It's kind of just a mess. And I can't imagine playing it on hard mode like you two did. I would have 
quit the game and start over easy. <laughs> I actually did not take a lot of damage during this fight. Must be nice. I'm not sure if I was just doing something differently or like I got, I got chomped by the boss twice and picked up by a tentacle once. So how do you not get chomped if you get picked up by a tentacle? Well, okay, sorry, right. Okay, so during the first phase, I got sure. picked up by the tentacle once, uh, and then I got chomped by the boss while swimming around twice. Oh, okay. There you go. See, I found the second phase far easier. Okay, so rant time, and it's really di- it really dives into exactly what Max just said in the, the last bit, which is water controls and clunkiness and just like general horrible feeling of fighting this boss like i agree that aesthetically vibe wise etc really excellently done great set piece um the the boss is uh look i think fighting underwater creatures should be probably the most difficult thing that you ever do anywhere because the bottom of the ocean is a freaking terrifying place that is uh, the spawn of demons. So like, yeah, look, these should be, these should be scary things. And it, it, it is, and it is a, this should be as hard as it is. And, and, and yeah. So, um, my big problem goes mostly to movement on the iron boots is so slow that you can't avoid its tax. I got, I died because I could not avoid the grabby tentacles in the first phase of this boss. And I like got snatched up like three different times because of like the tentacle would land and I would either try to back hop or I, I started trying to take the boots off and swim away. I could do neither of those things fast enough to get away from him. You also can't cancel your hook shot after it goes out. So I'm sitting there Z targeting, just spamming hook shot. So I'm stuck in hook shot animation. This tentacle lands next to me and I'm sitting there for like 15 seconds waiting for the hook shot to come back to me so I can move. And like, I will say, I also think the hook shots range was maybe artificially increased. It was way increased, way increased so much further. Yeah, it was insane. So like all of this thing, all of this just translates to like, excuse me, the claw shot. Yeah. Hook shot, claw shot, whatever. Um, All of this translates to me just like not feeling like I am able to control my character the way that I want to during this fight. When I can control him, he's slow and non-responsive. And a lot of the time I can't control him because he's stuck in an animation. And all of that translates into me getting monched a whole lot and dying. And I told you this, Lyndon, I didn't pick up the fairy the first time I fought him because I just didn't break those pots because I had 500 rupees. So I, I just like, whatever, I don't need to break a pot. So I missed the fairy. You cannot drink potion underwater. So I couldn't use the two <laughs> red chew jellies that I had saved up because I can't drink them underwater. So I'm sitting there like, well, guess I'll just die then. Thanks, though. <laughs> um, like, <laughs> guess I'll just die then, old man meme. Exactly. Is you. Yeah. yeah. Um, like, so, yeah, this was super frustrating. The second time around, I got a little bit better handle of it because I just swam around. Uh, above him and i just uh after the first time you get the eye and you smack it one time he spawns all the bomb fish so i swam around and i was just hook shotting the bomb fish and would occasionally hit the eye and then one of the bomb fish would blow up on the eye so like i just did that i just literally was spamming the hook shot while swimming above yeah. above him so and it ended up working i will say uh, for the first phase of this fight i got grabbed by a tentacle one time and then figured out pretty quickly that i could actually stand far enough away 
to not get grabbed, but also my hook shot or the freaking claw shot yeah. was still able to like get in there and get the eye. Like the range of the claw shot was something that I was finding very hard to like quantify for all of this. Yeah. I, I had the same thing. I figured out I could just kind of stand like they even have the circle kind of drawn in the texture on the ground that shows you the range of the tentacles. You kind of just stand out of it and you have to wait for the eyeball to come close enough, but then you can get it. So the, so once I figured that out, the first phase of this fight went pretty well. Uh, the second phase was the one that was a bit more frustrating for me just because one swimming controls, uh, we haven't really talked about swim speed so far in this episode, but I do think that you move just a little too slowly in the water when you're in swim mode. I mean, I'm not looking for Majora's Mask original Zora swim speed or anything, but just a little bit extra would be nice. Uh, so that was frustrating. Um, but on top of that, I was not aware that I could actually use my claw shot while swimming until midway through this boss fight. That had not been made clear to me at any point in the dungeon so far. And it's kind of a game changer because what I thought I had to do was to go and stand on one of the stone pillars and claw shot from there. But that's not actually what you have to do. No, I. I <laughs> so the second phase, I happened to like be right next to where he was when the cutscene ended. So I hook shot it onto the eye and stabbed it a couple times. He shakes you off and you end up close enough to re hook shot on immediately. So I finished the second phase in 30 seconds. It's just boom, 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 dead. I was like, okay. Yeah, second Yay. phase took me a lot longer than the first phase. I do love the animation when you claw onto the eye and then you're just like wailing on it with your sword. Yeah, I mean, that's cool. Come it was, on. It was really cool. I liked that a lot. Yeah. yeah. Max, how do you feel about this boss fight just like overall? I think it's cool. Um, yeah. Like, I, th- I think it has, it has pros and cons and they kind of balance out to it being a somewhat average boss experience for this game yeah all right fair enough uh (laughs) yeah yeah so uh to put a cap on the dungeon on the uh, dungeon map i think we can all say that lake bed temple was a really fun one yeah maybe not an all-timer but yet another very solid entry in this game's suite of dungeons which has been excellent so far agree completely yes awesome let's move on to part four which is Bloopy Trails, where we talk about fascinating things that diverted our attention this week. I'm going to get mine out of the way quick and just say, aside from the golden uh, wolf training mm-hmm. montage, uh, I didn't do hardly any Bloopy Trails this week. I wanted to. I wanted to go back up to the head of Zora's River and play the uh, the mini game that yeah. you unlock once you unfreeze everything and you're out of the twilight. However, there was no quick way. There's no fast travel way to get back up there from Lake Hylia other than just like hoofing it through Hyrule Field. I ain't doing that. And I just didn't have the patience for it. I was like, I know that I'm unlocking free fast travel in the next portion of the game. Yes. So I'm just going to wait until I can do that. I don't know why I don't have it now. We've been unlocking all these Twilight portals. Like, I should still have it. But right. anyway, um, so, yeah, I'm I'm going to go do that. I'm going to make a point to do it, but didn't get a chance to do it this week. 
just did some uh, some some wolf link or excuse me, just did some golden wolf training and that was fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I did. I did golden wolf training. I also got a full uh, piece of heart and a half. Um, like there are so many places where you like there's a lot of heart containers, just a uh, piece of hearts around. Um, so I did that. I got several in the Kakariko Village area. Yeah, that's mostly where I did. I also found some in uh, Hyrule Field. Um, got more golden bugs. I did uh, Tallow and Mallow's archery shooting challenge and completed that and got the piece of heart from doing oh, that. Yeah. So I forgot about that. I need to go do that. Okay. Yeah. How about you, Max? Yeah, uh, mostly I kind of found miscellaneous heart pieces. Um, I did the shooting challenge as well. Uh, I found this cave system uh, near or in Lake Hylia that I explored uh, as Link. And it was kind of frustrating because there's a bunch of Poes in there that I couldn't kill. Uh, but there's Harpies at the end, at least. Um, and then, for the most part, the rest of the Gloopy Trails will open up after this episode. <coughs> yep, that sounds about right. Free Roam does uh, wonders for side quests. All right, let's get into part five, which is Z-targeting, where we lock on to fascinating characters or enemies that we happen across. Max, I'm going to let you go first on this one. Yeah, um, okay, so realistically, my favorite character in every single section of this game is Midna, but this is not Midna's strongest section, so I'm not going to call call her out here. I will instead choose Telma, who I think is fun and who showcases one of the things I love about this game, which is characters with agency and who is the driving force behind a piece of gameplay that I enjoyed, which was escorting the carriage. Cool. Fair enough. How about you, Matt? Uh, I'm going to go with uh, Queen Rutella. I think she has just a super interesting character design. I would have chosen Telma, but I'll, I'll let Max have Telma this week. Uh, <laughs> and I, I think Queen Rutella has just truly unique character design. I think her motivations are really great. I think, um, I want to know more about how she died, especially given our conversations in the discord about the twilight princess manga, where apparently she is straight up exomacuted by Zant in front of all of the Zora people in Zora's domain. So like, I want to, I want to see that story. That's, that sounds like a lot of fun. Maybe we uh, try to (laughs) snag a copy of the twilight princess manga and flip through it a little bit or something. But um, yeah, queen Rotella is mine this week. So I'm about to choose not one character, but a, I don't know, a a segment of characters. Uh, That is going to be the Sorcerers of Twilight. Oh, yeah. The uh, the powerful wizards that are told about in the uh, in the myth that Lanayru conveys to us. Um, We get very creepy versions of these people in the cutscene that we were talking about earlier. But I don't know. I just think that there's something fictionally so interesting about these these magical like interlopers, right? This is kind of a theme that we hit a little bit in various Zelda games. And I think in Twilight Princess specifically, especially as we go further into the game, we're going to learn more and more about why those, you know, those dark sorcerers were important and maybe see some different shades of the story of, of what they are. But for now, I think that they're a very ominous, very fun I don't know, tidbit that's kind of thrown into the story of Twilight Princess. Love it. I'll allow it. <laughs> All right. Uh, I believe that brings us into part six. 
which is our final thoughts, <sighs> where we let Matt wrap up this section of the game in a much more succinct way <laughs> than he was able to do in the plot recap. Well, that's not hard. <laughs> we did. We went places, did stuff and things. Do you want me to do this one? Yeah, I do. I've never I've never actually heard you do one. I've never been present for that. Yeah, this, this is sounds part fun. six in which I wrap up this section of the game in as succinct a way as I can think to do. We move all over the northern area of Hyrule in this section of game. We meet many new characters. We reunite with old ones. Uh, we tackle our supposedly last area of twilight um we move between zora's domain and lake hylia set piece after set piece finally brings us to the lake bed temple which is a wonderful evolution on the water temple uh, convention of zelda dungeons um lots of fun challenges to be found there a fun item in the claw shot which we didn't actually talk about but do we really need to because no, it's, 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 it's it's just a another shot. shot yeah um uh, a fun, although maybe slightly divisive, boss fight brings us to the end of this section of game um, and really rounds out the first chapter of Twilight Princess. Uh, we, we really come to the end of the first act of this game um, and find ourselves very curious to see what comes after this. Well done, as not always, Lyndon. <laughs> well done, as this one time. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate you. Great job. <laughs> All right. This, this episode, as predicted, is dragging a little bit long. We're going to be at three hours roughly exactly by the time it's all done. Max, thanks for coming on this one, man. Um, I know we're going to have you back for yet another. Yes. Like really excellent dungeon before this season is over. Arbiters Grounds. Nope. Snow Peak. Oh, you're on Snow Peak. Who's Sam, on Arbiters? I, Sam's, Sam's on Arbiters Grounds. That's right. If they weren't practically back to back, I would have done both of those two. Uh, but, uh, yeah. I couldn't hog all the best dungeons. Yeah, That's so here, here's a spoiler. Yeah, uh, Nintendo fangirl herself, Sam, is joining us for Arbiter's Grounds, and uh, Max is joining us for Snow Peak, which, man, both of those are so good. Yeah, those um, are excellent yeah, dungeons. Yeah, they're both great. Uh, so can't wait to have you back for that one, Max. We'll have a lot more to talk about, of course. Um, in the meantime, quick drop. Just remind everybody where they can go to find all these excellent quotes that you keep dropping mid-episode. Oh, yes. Okay, yes. Uh, I run HyruleInterviews.com um, as well as social media accounts on Instagram, Twitter, Blue Sky, and Facebook um, where I post daily quotes. Uh, HyruleInterviews.com is a database of Zelda interviews and associated quotes uh, that I kind of just maintain for fun. I think I've got like 1,100 or so interviews in there so far. Um, but they are interviews with anyone who has ever worked on a Zelda game, whether the interview is about Zelda or not. Hell yeah. It is comprehensive. Uh, very, very. <laughs> it's a very impressive feat and uh, highly encourage everyone to go check that out. But Max, we will catch up with you again here in just a few weeks. Been a really fun time. Thank you so much, as always. Matt. Yeah. You ready to get out of here? Yeah, it's past midnight. Let's go to bed. Yeah, it, <laughs> it is 12.09. That is past midnight. And I'm tired. All right, y'all. If you enjoyed today's show and you would like a little extra Sacred Realms in your life, you can head over to patreon.com slash sacred realms pod and become a patron. 
If you've got no rupees, it's not a problem. Five-star Apple Podcast reviews are a great free way to support us. More reviews means that more people see our show. That makes us very happy, Hylians. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Sacred Realms Pod for updates on the podcast and for behind-the-scenes action. Should I even call it Twitter anymore? Is it X? No, I'm just going to keep calling it Keep calling it Twitter. It's Twitter. Stupid. Sacred Realms will be back next Wednesday with our thoughts on Twilight Princess Chapter 5, pivotal chapter of the Twilight Princess narrative. We'd love for you to play along with us and to share your thoughts on our social channels. Twilight Princess can be played in its original form on the Nintendo GameCube or the Nintendo Wii. Its HD remaster can be played on the Nintendo Wii U. And it can be emulated via a variety of means, assuming that you legally own the version of the game that you're emulating. But in the meantime, may your hearts be full, may your arrows never miss. We'll catch y'all next week. Sacred Realms is an independent, listener-supported podcast, which is produced, edited, and mixed by me, Lyndon Willoughby. Business operations are handled by Matt Willoughby. Our music is generously provided by Darknuck and is available to listen to on Spotify. Finally, we'd like to thank Nintendo for continuing to create such exceptional and innovative experiences. 